Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode, episode 90, practical advice for motorcycle camping and predicting your motorcycle's future using the past. All that and more coming up. But before we get going, I want to give a shout-out to some people who really helped the show, Adventure Rider Radio and Raw, with support of $50 or more over this past month. Here we go. Nicholas Prince, Kevin White, Paul Murray, David Curry, Michael Margus, Noel Smith, Claude Cosette, and John Sirabassi from Emmaus Moto Tours. Thank you all so much. Thank you everyone who supported the show. Remember, anything $50 or more gets you a shout out like you just heard me do. Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker. Drop by our website. We need your support. AdventureRiderRadio.com and click on support. Now, just in case Raw is a new discovery for you, we do another show every single week called Adventure Rider Radio. That is a flagship show. Drop by the website to see what's happening there and you can find all of our podcasts everywhere you find quality podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Fresh Tracks. Fresh Tracks provides team building programs for companies and groups and Cass and Moses representing injured bikers for over 30 years. Now, here we go. Adventure Rider Radio Raw for July 2023. I'll finish doing another bike. Okay, that's good. Let's just stop Brian right there. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio, deep in the wild forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my esteemed regular Overland co-host. Let's bring in Sam Manicom. Sam's actually traveling right now, and I think what Sam has done is he's stealth camping behind a motel in some bushes so that he can log into their Wi-Fi without paying for a room. Hello, Sam. Hello. Yeah, I, I tried the um, the garbage skips behind McDonald's, but I got moved on. <laughs> you got found out, did you? I did, yeah. Right. So this, what have you done? You've actually had to pay for a room? I have, yeah. I'm staying in quite a nice um, motel room, and it's um, an amazingly big room, um, as in about 15 times bigger than my tent. And the beauty of it is that I arrived here with a very soggy tent, which meant that um, I've had the room to, to actually put the tent up and give it a good old dry out and all of the rest of my kit too, oh. which has been absolutely fantastic. But I'm, I've been on the road for, again, for just um, a couple of days. So I stopped up um, with Michelle Lanfier in, hang on a minute, can we change that? Why am I saying Michelle Lanfier? I've been saying Michelle Lanfier for far too long. Um, I've just been having a wonderful time with Michelle at the Chalet Motel in Custer. I arrived completely exhausted because you remember in the last show I, I picked up this horrible bug and still no idea what it was, but it, it went on for um, almost a month and really kicked me in the backside. And I rode into um, Custer completely exhausted, but um, Michelle was just taking wonderful care of me and um, I'd lost nearly a stone in weight. Most of that is back on again. I tell you what, Michelle, you're a darn good cook. Um, and thank, thank you, we, Sam. <laughs> we've just had the most wonderful conversations um, for a whole week. And we've been out on rides. And I've been getting loads of private messages congratulating me on dragging Michelle away from her work. Um, she's probably playing this huge game of catch-up now. But um, I, I got back on the road a couple of days ago and I dropped down from the simply stunning um, mountains of South Dakota and into Nebraska. Uh, first day was rainy, um, but then yesterday was just brilliant sunshine. So um, I've been riding across 
the uh, the north of Nebraska and visiting places like Carhenge, which was a, a tip from uh, Michelle and a, a cracking tip it is too. But um, people told me that um, Nebraska, there's nothing much to see. Um, and well, for me, it's the first time in Nebraska, so I'm seeing lots of things that I'm thoroughly enjoying. So, so far, so wonderful. So I can picture the road sign saying, welcome to Nebraska, nothing much to see. <laughs> <laughs> I think it actually says something like the good life or, or you know, something like that. I did take a photograph, um, but uh, yeah, right. life has been good for me. Well, you just mentioned that you were feeling sick last time. I know you went and got sick because we did the episode on getting sick while on the road. So that was great. And now you've been out camping, got yourself soaking wet and all your gear soaking wet. So we can talk about camping today. I really appreciate that. That is like, <laughs> you really have to give Sam uh, like a, a prize for this, for his dedication to the topics that we cover. And since you've already brought Michelle in, let's bring Michelle in. Michelle, hello in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. And what a treat it was to have Sam here in South Dakota. I was I was so honored to have him here, but it really was just a joy. Um, and Sam can attest to this. We started our own little mini motorcycle community while he was here. We did. <laughs> we It was very international. It was amazing. So, of course, me from the U.S., Sam from the U.K. We had um, a guy, a very Scott. nice guy, friend of ours, Scott, um, who I had never met before um, from British Columbia. So a Canadian joined the party. He was around the area for a couple of days and stopped over for dinner. And then we had uh, Natasha, a, a woman from Poland who's doing around the world ride. And so she popped in for a few days and had some work to do on bike and, and gear and all of that. She's just starting her journey. So yeah, we had a little small version of a global motorcycle community in my own backyard. It was fantastic. Wow, that's really cool. And that was five days Sam was there? I don't, I don't know. I lost track. It didn't, it wasn't long enough. I don't know what it was. Yeah. It wasn't, that's great. I mean, I, I don't get that with my own family. He's a couple of days. Yeah. Give me the boot. No, fa family limit is usually three days for me too. So that, that speaks very highly of Sam. <laughs> my, my mother house trains me quite well, didn't she? <laughs> Obviously, yes. <laughs> Grant Johnson is in British Columbia. Hello, Grant. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back. It's been, feels like it's been a long time, but it hasn't really. It's only been a month, but it feels like a long time. But uh, it's been very busy for You're me. Busy. Oh, yeah, I've been busy. We, as some of you may know, we moved servers from one server to another. And because our old server, after 20 years with them, they're going bankrupt, which was oh. disastrous, terrible, but... We managed to get through the move. It was a staggering amount of work, 250,000 files, 80 gigabytes of data, plus databases. It's a, it's a nightmare. Took about a week. Solid work with some help. I've got a friend in Turkey who was helping and somebody else right here in VC where, where I live was helping out with it. It, was, it wasn't fun, but we got it done. And the good news is the new server is much faster than the old one. So everybody's really happy with that. So we got that done. And then the transmission fell out of my car. No. <laughs> well, it didn't physically out. fall out, but right. <laughs> <laughs> fortunately, although I know a guy who had that actually happen, who's driving along and transmission ended up on the ground, but this was in the old days. Cool. Uh, I anyway, have yeah, this the wonderful died. image, this cartoon image of you driving along and then all of these sparks flying up from <laughs> your car. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I did drive along one day in a car and somebody hadn't closed the hood properly. And I'm driving along, just pulling away from where I was working. And all of a sudden the hood flies up. 
wait a minute, I can't see anything. Yeah. Isn't <laughs> was, it, isn't it amazing how blind you are with the hood up? Oh yeah. Like there's the, now what do I do? You know, so you yeah. slam on the brakes and hope there's nobody behind you too close. I just mean, if you've never moved a vehicle with the hood completely up covering the windshield, you would think your peripheral vision would, would allow you to maneuver it somewhat, but nah. you are completely blind. Yeah, like, that's terrible. It really, like, well, obviously blocks your view. It sounds like you've done that deliberately, Jim. <laughs> no, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are in Australia. Good morning to the both of you. Good morning. And advice for people with visitors. Remember the Australian adage, visitors go off like a bucket of prawns in the sun. Three days, that's it, they're out. <laughs> I'm surprised your prawns last three days yeah. in the sun. <laughs> There's a certain flexibility there. There is, yeah. there is indeed. Well, we did try a few prawns. We, we, we've just done a road trip up north and back to escape the um, southern winter and um, ended up walking along the beach uh, up in Queensland and having a bit of fun and then cruising down the coast uh, to little places that we really like, um, Port Macquarie coming south and, yeah, it's been good, and I dropped into um, our, our capital, uh, Canberra, to do a meeting for the wall to wall, which we'll talk about later. But uh, yeah, um, all good here. So you took Shirley on a like a little vacation. We did have yeah, a lovely yeah, vacation. Yeah, it was very and you pleasant. wouldn't believe it. So were you going there to buy a bike, Brian? No, or? no, <sighs> you wouldn't believe it. But you know, I organised this trip for her and stayed in a nice hotel and all the rest of it. And you wouldn't believe it, but my football team was playing their local football team up there on this at the same time. So we had to go and have a look. Wow. <laughs> it was figure. fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was all fun. Uh, talking of uh, things dropping out of cars, we were um, doing an outback trip and we, you know, it, it's set, you know what the outback's like, Sam and Grant, you know, we're, mm-hmm. it's just straight and you see for miles, you can see the curvature of the earth. And we're going along this um, dirt road and I could see a blob on the road up ahead and couldn't work out what it was. And as we got closer, I worked out it was a complete engine in the middle of the road. No car, no nothing, just an (laughs) engine sitting in the middle of the road. One would think the people who'd lost it would have known they'd lost it. <laughs> you would think. You would you? There's nothing else there. You're looking for the hulk of the car or something. No, just the engine. Wow. You spooky music. <laughs> <laughs> well, our topics today are practical advice for motorcycle camping and using your bike maintenance records to predict the future. Let me just say that again. Using your bike maintenance records to predict the future. Now, that is a title you've never heard anywhere before. Mm. That is very unique. But we'll anyway, so we're gonna, we're, <laughs> we'll start with the uh, practical advice for for motorcycle camping. As you know already, Sam has already been out camping, getting soaking wet, so that he can talk about how he dealt with getting wet and why did he get wet. Because he's an experienced camper, he's not supposed to get wet. But maybe we'll get into that. You know, one thing I was going to say with this is it's easy to make the assumption because you know everybody on this panel camps it's easy to make that assumption that everybody knows what camping's all about, but there's a lot of people who just don't camp or have very little experience about it. So, you know, we, we have to, we have to keep that in mind. The first thing I want to start with, with, with this was why do you camp? Because there are some people, when you mention camping, they just sort of roll their eyes and, and think, you know, <laughs> why would I want to go camping? What, what do I want to go lay on the ground for and, and eat with dirt and bugs around me and everything like that? Why would I want to put myself through that ordeal to, uh, to say that I've went camping. So 
what's your motivation for camping? Is it a money saver? Enjoyment of the outdoors? What, what, what is the motivation? I started sort of looking to go around here. Sam, let's start with you. Why do you camp? Oh, yeah. I mean, in part, it's a money saver. In part, um, I love waking up in the morning um, when there's nobody else around, which is one of the reasons why I like to, to camp um, you know, away from um, you know, towns and cities and things like that. Um, but I also really like it because I'm parked right next door to my tent, so it's easy to unload and load and work on the bike and cook and all of that sort of thing. But also on, on proper camping sites, then it's a great opportunity to meet other people. You stay in a motel room and you might nod and smile and say good morning or good afternoon to somebody, but that can be about the only conversation you end up having. Um, but yeah, I do particularly like remote camping sites where I'm just waking up to the world. Um, if Bill gets with me, then of course I'm waking up to her first. Mm. That's not, is that an order? Look, as you said, yes, it's a money saver. Is that sort of the first thing for you or is it the love of camping? It's, it's the love of, of being in the outdoors. Um, yeah, I it, it that, that's pretty much the balance though. Um, I travel on a fairly tight budget and therefore money saving is important. But I just like being outdoors. Um, 20, yeah. And this is one of the reasons that I ride a motorcycle, because I'm just outdoors all the time. It's, it's just well, that's wonderful. A, that's a good point. Now, you said you travel on a tight budget. Why, why do you worry about money so much, Sam? Oh, never mind. We'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mich- <laughs> Michelle, <laughs> how about you? <laughs> I'm, I'm with Sam. I love the outdoors. I love, you know, the smell of a forest. Um, and, and so you can tell where I'd prefer to camp, obviously, is a forest. Um, <laughs> But I, I really do love being outdoors. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest reason for me for camping. But there are other times that I've camped um, just because I wanted to be near, for example, a national park and there wasn't any accommodation nearby. So it was the best way to see the place or to experience the park and enjoy it at its fullest was to camp in the midst of it or on the edge of it so that I could spend more time in that location rather than traveling on to reach some other accommodation. But I think the thing (laughs) that cracks me up is uh, keeping in mind that I was a hotel manager for 20 years before heading out on long distance travel. I have fairly high hotel room standards. That doesn't necessarily mean that I stay in the nicest hotels, but I like them to be very, very clean. And going into some countries around the world, um, I have stayed in some very, very interesting places, some clean, some very much not clean. And I remember having a, a, a conversation with a Swiss friend somewhere on the road, a, motor, a fellow motorcycle traveler, and she and I were comparing horror stories of staying in different places. And um, she made a comment that I just thought is, is so true. She said, when you're in doubt about the cleanliness of a hotel room, I'd rather save the money and camp because I'd rather sleep in my own filth than somebody else's. That's good. <laughs> okay. So Shirley, how about you? Um, well, of course, anyone who listens regularly knows we don't camp as often as um, Michelle and Sam. Um, most of our camping has been done in national parks, in, in which is for enjoyment of the outdoors and um and experiencing everything around us, but there, it's problematic traveling two up on one motorcycle um, to have be able to camp comfortably and to be completely self sufficient. But we did stay but in for a long time for a long for period a long time, of time. But um, we did yeah. stay in one national park where 
we'd worked out there was a shop nearby and we were going to go and get some food to cook up and Brian was going to get firewood, et cetera, et cetera. And as we pulled in, there was a restaurant about, I don't know, a kilometre away from where we were camping. So that seemed like a much better option. So we walked to the restaurant, had a fabulous meal and walked back and sat by the fire and had a glass of wine. It was just perfect camping. It sounds you had a perfect. glass of wine. Mm. That was not breakfast, right? <laughs> no, we have whiskey on our wheat bix. We have no. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> so, so, Brian, do you have? Do, do you just agree with that, or do you have something else to uh, add? Yeah, look, I, I quite like camping in the outback of Australia. You know, with those big skies and you know the red dirt and all the rest of it. And I really think that that's, there's something special about that. Sure, we've camped in the, the forests of uh, the US and and stuff like that, and that's fantastic. But to me, maybe maybe it's in ground into me, but um, that the outback is really nice. You know, we, we camped across the Simpson Desert, we camped it um, going through there, and oh, we've done can, a lot of camping I, in Australia. I, I, I can remember, you know, we're sitting in our campfire with our friends, and it gets dark, and you see the stars come up, and then all of a sudden, it got light and a huge full moon actually lit up the sky, uh, which was just fantastic. It was just one of those special times, wasn't it, Shirley? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. So, yeah, I, yeah we enjoy it, but, um, yeah, and the solitude of it, out, particularly out on the desert, was just fantastic. You know, it's a very good point there, but because when you're out camping, you do notice things like um, the changing hours so much more, don't you? You yeah. really see those dawns and you yeah, really see the sunsets and when the moon comes out, just wow. Which is a drawback, Sam, when you're camping, as we did um, in Alaska and um, northern Canada during summer, yeah. when you're sitting yeah. around talking, <laughs> thinking, gosh, we should start thinking about getting something to eat and it's 11 o'clock. Because mm-hmm. yeah. there has been no change in the daylight level. I, 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 yeah. Think, yeah, I think on that trip, our camping compatriots actually drank every bit of alcohol we had in the place at one night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were we were travelling with a couple who had a a car, so the three of us who were on motorcycles, or four of us on motorcycles, yes. were dependent on the car as our supply truck, and um, yeah. You didn't it want to got, be camping next to us that night, it, I'm just it saying. It got ugly. It involved uh, losing a tent. It involved losing a tooth. <laughs> what? Ooh, what? What happened? Oh, yeah. Not oh, us, but what happened? Hang on a second. I'm just... I'm just piecing this together now. So so they. I thought you meant they just drank a lot of alcohol, but you, they, they drank your alcohol and you guys got an altercation and there was a fist fight. No, 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 no,
Uh, Brian, you've just brought back a whole load of memories of bad plant faces to count. Oh, <laughs> I know. There are, there are some out <laughs> yeah. there for sure. Um, but it, I mean, it, once you're out there and you're set up and you're in a nice place, I remember this one spot we camped in Alaska, actually, and it was absolutely amazing. It was just a little stealth camp down a little trail it wasn't really a road it was a trail and came down and there was a river there and there was an embankment and it was solid wildflowers on the whole area there um it was grass like 20 feet back from the river on the side we were on it was absolutely stunning and it, you just can't compare with that i mean it was mm-hmm. private it was quiet the river was burbling by it was really really nice um, and I've seen, I've had lots of camping spots like that, that kind of drown out the terrible ones. But yeah, the enjoyment of the outdoors, absolutely. You know, you, the stars come out, the sun comes up in the morning. It's a fresh day. It smells fresh. It feels good. You're ready to go. It's a really good feeling getting in touch with, with the wild and with nature. It's, it's something else. But of course, yeah. yes, it's definitely a money saver. And you look at uh, cost of hotels these days, and wow, yes, it's a big money saver. Wouldn't take very long before you could pay for a new motorcycle. Well, especially in North America, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, yeah South America, Europe. Africa. Oh, yeah, Europe. Don't even want to talk about it. Um, but South America and uh, Africa, I, I've stayed in places that were five bucks. Mm-hmm. And not bad either. So there's a lot of love of camping here, certainly some money-saving aspects to it, but also the the, the odd little concern or, or, or mention about those horrible camping experiences where you where you camp beside someone. Um, it's the same thing for me. I, I love the outdoors. So for me, camping is, is just, an, it's where I want to be. That's as simple as that. And then of course, there's the money thing as well. I mean, the, the thought of when you... Sorry, Michelle, this is this is terrible for me to say this while you're here, but the thought of me going in and have to pay for a, a lot of money for a hotel room just for the night... I don't know, often seems like a waste of money. I'm just going to get up and go in the morning. <laughs> uh, Michelle's isn't a lot of money and um, it's vintage. It's one, They're wonderful rooms. I'll tell you what, you, you need to go well, and stay there. Well, well, I would definitely stay at Michelle's, of course, exactly. because like, it's the place to go now, isn't <laughs> and, it? I mean, if you're heading to the Black Hills of South Dakota... That's you go very, to the chalet motel. Very kind. But for the record, I'm I'm wearing my podcast motorcycle traveler hat today. <laughs> and I have to say I'm not, I'm not offended in the least and I can be a cheapskate about rooms. I'm I'm a really good bargain hunter especially it was a kind of a refined skill set that you develop in South America and and in different countries around the world trying to find, you know, the the best price, but also getting, you know, a decent view or a good location or a good breeze or some facilities, maybe a shower house or access to some water and a toilet and some different things. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of an art of, of finding the place that you want to spend the night and, and have that fit within your budget. So I, mm. I'm with you. I'm, I'm a bargain hunter too. And it is, a, it is nice if the hotel room has a toilet. Did your hotel rooms have toilets? <laughs> yes. Mine, oh, they do. Mine all do. We don't even have to oh. share them or anything. Yeah. Wow. And <laughs> I'm no guess- wonder Sam stayed so long. I'm guessing your motel rooms will be sparkling clean. Well, wow, they had better be. <laughs> <laughs> I have no excuses if they're not. So, hey. <laughs> Hey, let's, um, let, does anyone have any, any common misconceptions about camping that they wanted to maybe debunk or talk about? Did anyone think of any? 
It has to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Camping is uncomfortable. That's why I had I had that as well. Camping is not comfortable. Does it? Does anyone think camping is not comfortable? Uh, look, I, it can yeah, be. Yeah, camping. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have the right gear and you're not well set up and you don't have your act together, um, it can be miserable. I mean, I remember my yeah. first camping experiences when I was like twelve, and it was pretty miserable. <laughs> Yeah, I, when you said that, I just thought of, of waking up to being frozen in, my tent frozen in, and there's slush on it. It's one of those pup tents with no fly. And um, yeah, that was pretty miserable, but I still kind of liked it. I don't know. There, there was still something about it I liked. Have you guys ever um, tried water beds? Water beds? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't tried it camping, though. It's quite, it's, it's quite entertaining, but you definitely need the guidelines to hold you in place. <laughs> what? We'll have, we'll have to dig into that. I don't have a clue what he's talking about. Uh, <laughs> so we, we stayed in one place and a storm blew in overnight. And um, literally the, the rain was so heavy um, and it was going underneath our tent. Um, it, it literally felt like we were lying on a waterbed. We must have had three or four inches of water flowing underneath us for a couple of hours. Oh, wow. And that was, and it, the, the other thing was it was really cold but not as cold as if we hadn't had a, um, a completely dry inside tent. So we were, we were set. Mm. Yeah. Important nice. to have that dry. Mm-hmm. Yes. Keeping dry is very important. Any, anyway, so that there was a uh, being uncomfortable. So, so we agree that it, I mean, it's, yeah, you can definitely be uncomfortable. I mean, I, I think I was ready to say, no, you're not going to be uncomfortable. But I guess the, as soon as you guys started to speak, I realized, no, of course you can be uncomfortable in camping. I mean, I've been uncomfortable in camping. The great deflatable bed. Oh, yeah. Jim. Your bed goes. Yeah. 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 Um, we had two beds, of course, because we have two people. And whose bed was the one who kept deflating in the middle of the night? Mine. And there's nothing quite like you were waking on up. The wrong bed. Oh, clearly. <laughs> uh, and there's nothing quite like waking up in the middle of the night knowing that you're lying on the ground and having to call, crawl out of your very warm sleeping bag to pump up the bloody bed again. Uh, that to me is uncomfortable, just saying. I'm, surpri- I'm surprised you didn't smack Brian and tell him to move over and trade places. Excuse me, you've seen him. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've met you too, Shirley. <laughs> okay, point taken. Are you going to do that to Susan? I would, Ooh. yes, unfortunately. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd move over for her. Yeah, there uh-huh. you go. Good, good quick, quick, yeah, too right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyone uh, else has a, a common misconception? I, I think I think you've got to have a good bed, but one thing that really irks me is um, toileting. Uh, campers who don't know how to toilet properly, and the outback of Australia at certain places is littered with toilet paper. And whoever invented yep. toilet mm. paper, you know, come on, you know, uh, it, it doesn't uh, degrade, you know, it gets dug up by animals if you try and bury it. No, it's just, it, it, it just, yeah. it's destroying the, uh, our, um, our beautiful nature's. And I, I know I've said this before, but in New Zealand, camping, unless you are black and grey water contained, you can't. You can't, you can't free camp yeah, anywhere. And, and it's nice. because people are are lazy, they don't understand what they're doing, and I don't know how many carry a little spade so they can actually dig a hole and, you know, it's just, 
It's gross. Sorry. Well, yeah, and I think we've talked about this before, but even that's getting... Well, let's wait. Let's let's talk about that crap later, later on. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Oh, Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that a little sorry. bit later on. Sorry, I'm jumping Seems out. I can't believe I'm entertaining myself here. Okay. <laughs> how, how about another misconception? Does anyone have one? Hmm. Um, that it has to be hard work. I, I think it can be... Um, pretty simple. If you get used to your equipment, it takes a bit of practice. So setting up your tent, um, if you do it a few times and have kind of a system to it can become much simpler. I know some people dread getting into camp, especially if it's late enough in the day and they don't want to, you know, take the time to set up. Um, and it can be a little bit of work, but I think again, with more practice, you know, Getting a system in place, choosing flat ground, choosing a proper location, maybe um, with some shade or maybe you want morning sun, whatever. You kind of just develop those skills and it doesn't feel as much like a chore after a while. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you start to get point. a sort of autopilot, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was talking to a friend the other day and she says that she wild camps a lot and she never puts the tent up until it's dark. But she says she knows her tent so well. And she knows how she lays everything out inside her tent so well that she just does it, you know, she doesn't need to see anything to do it. You mm. get to that stage, don't you, where you, you just do it on autopilot. You have an order and a system and it works. Yep, everything has its place. You get standard standardized mm. is the important thing. How about um, keeping clean? This, this is one that I hear people mention a fair bit, is that you, if you're camping, you're dirty. Like that's, it's almost like a thing of, it's an assumption that if you're camping all the time, well, you must be dirty. Do you guys have trouble staying clean when you camp? No. <laughs> the extra layers of grease are really, really handy when it's cold. Yes. Definitely <laughs> keep the answers I was looking for. But, uh, you know, I, I think you can be dirty when you camp, certainly. I, I'm not going to tell you that story. Now, and it's not about me, so don't worry. It's, it's about somebody else. But um, you don't have to be dirty. You yeah. do, I think, tend to be... I don't, th- I don't call it dirt. It's earth that tends to be on you. So it's, it's, um, there's a difference in my mind between filth and earth. You know, you've got earth on your hands or maybe on your clothes or things like that. That's because you're camping with the earth. It doesn't mean you're really dirty. Right. That's your story yeah. and you're I, sticking to it, Jim. I'm looking for support here. I was <laughs> for someone else to come in and back me up I'm, on this. I, I will remember kids um, when I'm traveling in, you know, in remote areas and the kids have got grimy, grubby faces and it tends to be just dirt because they've been out playing. But these kids have all got huge smiles on their faces. Yeah, and, earth. Yeah. yeah. Besides, you can always wash your face. Wash your hands anytime, whether you're camping or not. It's not a big deal. It's not complicated. Yeah. I don't think it's an issue. I don't think I think of myself as maybe getting dirty when I camp. I will say that maybe it depends on what's going on with the climate. If it's tropical and I'm sweaty or I've been riding for the day, yeah. I mean, it would be nice to have a shower, but um, that's where, you know, just a, a quick bird bath of sorts, you know, kind of sorts that out and I sleep better. Yeah, uh, yeah, but I can maintain pretty decent levels of cleanliness in camp and, and go without washing my hair for a few days. But um, yeah, I mean, you find ways to do it. And again, you kind of just develop that, that skill set or that comfort level, maybe with a little practice too. Um, explain, yeah. explain bird bath. Uh, for me, th- yes, thank you, Sam. That's just something I, I guess I use on autopilot. But uh, um, so for me, some people pack wet wipes and I'm not necessarily a fan of wipes, 
but I carry a washcloth and some water and soap. Um, and if nothing else, it just feels really good to wash my face, my neck, hands, things like that when I land at camp. Um, but also maybe your torso. If, if you're in tropical areas and you're really hot or you've been sweaty, I tend to sleep a lot better if I give myself just kind of, a, you know, use a, a, a little bit of water um, and soap in a, in a rag and just do a wash and then rinse as well. Rinse my washcloth out and rinse with clear water. Yep. Your, your skin just feels cleaner. You get rid of that sticky sweat. Some of the dirt that's clung to you, um, some of the grime from the road. I, I'm, I'm sure as motorcyclists, everybody's pulled up someplace and seen their face covered with the truck's exhaust, the trucks that have been around them or dust from the road. So mm. um, we know how that collects, you know, on faces and necks. But yeah, I, I think um, just a, a quick bath, I, I call it, as opposed to actually taking a bath or a shower. I know quite a few people that um, travel with something like an Ortlieb um, fold-up um, basin. And that yeah. has two uses, it, in part, well, actually got three, um, washing yourself, um, washing up, but also looking for punctures and tubes and, and things like that. But um, I'm a bit more gross than that. I have a saucepan so I can cook in that and I can wash in it. Oh, so stop it, Sam. <laughs> you, you would actually check you put your good tube and water that you've washed in sam that's disgusting <laughs> poor tube <laughs> that's what i mean but i agree with michelle no that's a very good point and, and those things are great you can get there's all kinds of them out there now but but i've always done that as well you can you can get them so they're tiny like i've got some that are that are really tiny i'm thinking like 10 inches maybe uh, across like 10 inches on each on each side and they're they're square they fold up or at least makes them. And then you can have your bird bath and it works perfectly. Yeah, I do the same thing all the time. I, mean, I, I camp with a friend of mine occasionally and he'll go three days without doing anything. Maybe, maybe wash his hands. And I, I, I find it just gross. You know, I, mm -hmm. I'm definitely out there cleaning all over before I climb. I get into my tent sometimes because that's the only way you can, place you can do it and um, just have a wipe down. It just feels so much better. I sleep better, yeah. everything. Mm -hmm. I took Michelle's yeah. comments on board about wet wipes. Does anybody else use them? No. Yeah, no, I, I take them as well. So I have the wet wipes there and they're just sort of an emergency thing for me or like, you know, like a, a quick thing if I wanted to. Sometimes you just you know, want to wipe the back of your neck off or something, your face off or something or other areas <laughs> you might want to wipe. So they're more for the quick uh, go at it. Yeah. There are mm -hmm. ones that are biodegradable and it's worth looking for those because yes. many of the ones that aren't, they're made out of plastic. Yeah. Mm. I know. And they're, they're right. really bad for plugging things up and, and, and they're not even good in the outhouses or things like that. So yeah, yeah you definitely got to get the biodegradable ones. One of the reasons I stopped carrying them was because I realized that when I, by the time I actually needed to use it, because I normally have a face cloth and I got water, et cetera, I open it up and it's not a wet wipe anymore. It's a dry wipe. Yeah. I mean, so what's the point? But for yeah. the record, you can add water to them and you True. can, you can use them again. They still keep all the cleaning chemicals and perfumes and stuff in them. You just have to add a little water and give them a little time to sit and reabsorb. Mm. Yep. Good idea. Good and and with, with the two uses rule in mind, once I've used mine, when I do, then I'll go around and I'll clean my headlights and clean my indicators and my blinkers and that sort of stuff with them. So there we are, two uses. There you go. Yeah, but Sam, I want to know if you found a second use for your little toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's 
I don't know how many um, listeners to Raw saw Michelle's post the other day. <laughs> yes, it was hugely tongue in the cheek, and she was taking the Michael out of me, and we were expecting um, a, a, very, a very firm response from Shirley, which I don't think we actually got. We just got some smileys, but, but they were on the road. So, we're, yes. um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Michelle, you know, because uh, in previous episodes of Raw, we've talked about um, cutting spoons down and cutting toothbrushes down and how it saves space. And yeah, okay, it's a little bit of weight, but it all adds up to it to enough things. And so when I got to um, um, the Chalet Motel and Michelle, just with this big cheeky grin, and it really was cheeky, um, <laughs> she, she turned up with a, with a, te- with a, a toothbrush which she'd left about an inch of handle on. So what do you reckon? (laughs) So I have a collection of used brushes and toothbrushes for cleaning every little corner and nook and cranny in a hotel room. And I did have this old toothbrush and I went to my maintenance shop, dug out my chop saw and chopped the handle off. And I was... I had tears running down my face imagining you guys seeing this, you know, demonstration of Sam with his toothbrush. <laughs> I liked your delicate little fingers, Michelle. Sam <laughs> couldn't have carried that, yeah. that tiny bit off. <laughs> so I cut the handle off and left it on his pannier for him. Like, here you go, Sam. I've got a new toothbrush for you. <laughs> but I did get you back, didn't I, Michelle, by showing you my bowl. And you my did. spoon with a cut-off handle <laughs> so it fits inside the bowl. <laughs> That's right. He said, I'll see your toothbrush and raise you a spoon. Exactly. <laughs> it was good. Well, we're going to have to get that photo and post it in the show notes. Yes. Can, can we get that? Yeah, Absolutely. Post the photos. Okay, let's yeah, let's do that. Okay. I didn't see them, so I'm, I'm in the dark here as well. <laughs> Okay, so um, wh- why don't we talk about the, the, the different types of, of camping? You know, there's stealth, there's open camping, I guess. And these are sort of loose names because stealth camping, to, to some people, they'll think of it as wilderness camping, whereas I, I think we see it as something different. I think most of us here see stealth camping as one thing, and then maybe wild camping or open camping as something else. And then, of course, there's campgrounds. So, so there, there's obviously huge differences between these. Let's start with the stealth camping. Who can define stealth camping? It's really easy. Come on, guys. This is really easy. This is not a test. You just just jump where you're not supposed to camp. (laughs) Sam, Sam, can you define stealth camping? I can. You simply look for somewhere that's either out of sight of others or in full visibility that does not offend anyone's private property situations. And the key with wild camping, stealth camping, is that you're polite and respectful and you're not paying anything. So stealth camping, uh, the, some, of the, some of the ways you can divide this, the stealth camping would be the one where you're hiding in a spot. And I think, Sam, we talked about this some years ago, actually. Mm, so stealth camping could be seen as the times where you're going to camp somewhere you probably shouldn't camp. So you're going to hang out until maybe it starts to get dark before you set up and you're going to be gone before it gets light. Sam, am I ringing any bells here for you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, behind yeah. derelict buildings, down lanes or tracks, exactly. or deserted car parks that are way out of town, all of those sorts of places. Bingo. Whereas wilderness camping could be seen as, you know, those campsites that are sort of semi-developed. They're a little spot that a lot of people go, maybe down by river or mountaintop or or somewhere, you know, some some spot where it's um, sort of used for camping, but it's not an approved camping spot necessarily. It's just a spot where people go to, that would be, that could be wild camping. And of course the other camping would be the uh, the campground itself. So why would you want a stealth camp, Sam? 
Uh, in part, it's because of the challenge. It's quite entertaining trying to find somewhere that you can camp um, for free. Um, in part, it's um, always a bit of an adrenaline buzz, which is kind of fun to have. Um, and, well, of course, it helps the budget quite dramatically um, if you're not paying for a camping site. We've talked about prices of hotels and motels and so on, but camping sites cost too. Yeah, I look at stealth oh. camping as a place you wouldn't, most people would not camp. That's kind of my thinking on it. And the reason well, I, I will stealth camp, yeah, but the, the reason I stealth camp is because I haven't got a lot of choice. The hotels are full or they're expensive and it's too far to go to try and find some place out of town or it's too late in the day. I, I need a place to camp now. So that's when I stealth camp. Mm. What's the most bizarre place you've stealth camped at? Um, we've done a symmetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Been there, wow. done that. It's great. Really? Very peaceful. Everybody's yeah. asleep. That's nice. What do you mean? That's <laughs> quiet. That's a thing, staying in a cemetery? I didn't realize sure. that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Can you uh, hang a hammock up in a cemetery? No. It was in Pakistan. <laughs> yeah, it was Pakistan. We had to be off the road. Uh, you can't travel at night in, in, in that northwest frontier province. And uh, we had to get off the road. Uh, so we had to find somewhere uh, away from the road. Um, and um, so we, we camped next to a cemetery. Uh, we didn't actually know it was next to a cemetery uh, until the morning. Yeah, it was dark. But we're thinking dark. there was okay. a fair bit of conversation in the village nearby as they saw odd lights in the cemetery during the night. So. <laughs> <laughs> Cue spooky music. Yeah. Hmm. And if there are signs saying no camping, then, you know, just don't. You don't. And, unless you have permission. And that does happen from time to time because you go and talk to the locals. And you say... Yeah. Do you know somewhere that we can camp? Um, over this last couple of days, one of the things that I've been doing as I've been riding is having a look at places that I could camp um, for free. And I found um, a surprising number. Can I list them? Go sure. You're going to list all the places that you're going to camp for free on your route, you mean? Yeah, over the last two days. I'm curious. So there were two town parks. I stopped at... Um, a bar in one and the petrol station and the tourist office in the next and ask if I could camp in the town park. And both of them said, yeah, sure, why not? There are no facilities. So I just said, well, probably the gas station in the morning if I fill up with gas and um, they'll be, let me use their, um, their washrooms. And they said, yeah, sure, why not? Go for it. Um, I mean, I didn't in the end. Um, there were three storage areas for um, roadwork gravel. You know, you go past those by the side of the road somewhere sometimes where you know, they, it's just waiting for supplies, for resurfacing the road or for gritting when it's snow and all of that sort of stuff. And you can very easily find somewhere to tuck a tent behind um, one of those mounds of, of gravel. Um, so I found three of those. Um, there were two, two side roads uh, to river shores. Um, there were just, you know, very light tracks down to the river shore, but people had obviously camped there in the past. There were no signs saying that you couldn't. Um, there was one side turning onto a track, and I took, went up that for about um, 200 yards and then did a left turn, and I found this wonderful grassy little patch. Um, once at a gas station, I just went and asked if it would be all right if I was coming back this way, if um, I could put my tent up on the grass at the back of the gas station. And she said, oh, we've never been asked that before. Yeah, sure, why not? Um, and, of course, I said, I'll fill up with um, gas in the morning. Um there was uh, a semi-derelict bar next door to a gas station. And so I asked in the gas station, would anybody mind if I camped behind the bar? And 
the girl looked at me as if to say, you're barking mad, but why not? Um, there was um, a roadside historical marker. Um, so there were two signs and um, there was a sort of area behind it, which was just trees and grass. Um, very easy to, um, you know, to put a tent up there and nobody from the road would have known that I was there. Um, and there was one track to a lakeshore and it was a track again. So, you know, just sort of two tire tracks heading down to this lakeshore and there were patches where people had had tents in the past and yeah, I'm sure I could have camped there with no problem at all. So that's actually not bad for two days in Nebraska, is it? Mm-hmm. Mm. No, that's, that's a lot of choices. Than I thought. Mm. The, the gravel things, you know, I, I've done that many times you know, where, where, you, where they're doing road work or they store gravel or anything like that. And nobody, I've, no one's ever said anything to me about anything like that. I did, I did stay in a, you mentioned a, a historical uh, a sign. Did, mm. did you stay there? Yeah. Sorry, on the, on on this trip, no, I didn't. So I've stayed on the, in places like that in the past, but um, yeah. Oh, no, I see. Not, not on this one. I think as long as you do that sort of stuff, like when it comes to stealth camping, really you're, you're not bugging anyone, you know, usually, almost always. And you're, you're there at the night, you're gone early in the morning, no one even knows you were there. Exactly. Wait until almost dark or dark, put your tent up or your hammock and just get it down again in the morning um, as the dawn comes up. And mostly nobody has a clue that you've been there. Mm-hmm. Do you um, do things like cover your bike and careful with your lights and noise and all that sort of stuff, Sam? Yes, I do. And at the moment I'm traveling with a silver um, cover to the bike and I'm really conscious that that's not helping. Funnily enough, um, pale colors work really well as bike covers when you're um, wild camping. I know people who travel with camouflage ones, but they just draw attention if you do end up staying in a motel. Um, but, you know, just pale um, motorcycle covers, something that will just blend in um, with the light and the shadows. But that's the same thing with your tent. Um, a bright yellow or bright red tent doesn't help you to wild camp, but um, sort of uh, pale greens and pale yellows, um, those do, because they do tend to blend in. Yeah. Yes. Has anyone camped at a spot where they got kicked out of? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. What happened? Really annoying, especially at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> uh, I was camped in a um, roadside, you know, these roadside pull-offs in BC, in fact. And um, the local police didn't like that, even though I was out of sight. You, I don't even know how he spotted where I was. He must have known every square inch of that place and knew all the gaps and stuff. But 11 o'clock at night, came around, and pulled out a flashlight, and pointed it at me and said, you, come here. What? <laughs> I'm in bed. Come back in the morning. That didn't fly. Oh, so I had to camp up, pack up, and camp, and get, pack up, camp, and get out. Wow. Yeah, I wasn't hurting anybody. Fun. You know, it was no big deal, yeah. no problem. It's like, what's the problem now? But there's been lots of times where you've camped, in, like you know, to contrast that, where you've never had an issue. Oh yeah, that's the only time I've ever had an issue, and I've camped yeah. in in um, medians in between the two sides of the freeway, all kinds of places, and never had an issue. And and it seems now there are so many people that are homeless, and this is a really sad statement, that are actually using these roadside places, and that's where they live in their camper or whatever. Their camps they're completely set up. They've got camp chairs out there, and a picnic table, and the whole work bit, and they're there for years. So, no, you're not going to get bothered by it anymore. But 50 years ago, yep, you sure did. Mm. Um, I've had a couple of experiences where uh, 
Well, firstly, I've heard of people in Turkey being moved on by the police for uh, camping, uh, trying to stealth camp. Uh, hasn't happened to us, but I've, I've heard those stories. Secondly, we, we um, there's half a dozen of us uh, mates travelling around Australia and we went to Hall's, Ga- uh, Hall's Creek over in WA, pulled into the service station and we were just going to camp in town. We, you know, we'd done a you know, eight, uh, 900k day and we're just looking for somewhere quiet to camp. And as I'm fueling up the bike, uh, the local police uh, car pulled in and I said, oh, we're looking for somewhere to camp, you know. We think you're just going into the, the park around the corner. He said, no, don't, don't stay in town. The kids are going berserk. Um, you'll lose everything that's not tied down. Go out the road about 10 k's, turn onto this dirt road, go down there about 15 kilometres. There's a lovely camp spot drop toilets and everything like that. It's a day tripper's spot. You'll be it'll be fine out there. It'll be great. And that was that was good. No worries. I thought that was really good. Um, we're travelling travelling with a couple of guys on road bikes. So we get to the turn off to go down um, the dirt road and it's corrugations. And which is fine on the GS, you stand up and go for it. But the guys on the Harley and the six cylinder BMW they struggled on the dirt, and uh, I think one of them is still looking for his eyeballs that were still bouncing around by the time we got into the, the campground. It was a great little spot. But, um, you know, we were advised to get out of town because of um, the, the, um, the, the theft issue that was going on at the time. And I've got mm. to say, I've, I've had two mates just recently come back from um, Canada and the US, and they were surprised at the number of um, people camping on freeways, just off freeways, under overpasses and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You so mean like permanent camping? Permanent campsites, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we see it too much. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. We've got them in our town too. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not just there. It's, we've got it here too. I was reading something the other day that um, that said the, the city of Bristol is actually welcoming people who are living in their vans. And instead of kicking them out all of the time, they're actually making facilities so that um, they can actually live in their vans um, with some amount of of, um, of comfort and support. Nice. And I just thought, what a cracking idea! Because most of these people they don't want to be doing what they're doing. Um, many of them, van life people, they love it, and that's why they're doing it. But there are so right. many other people that have fallen on hard times and right. are doing it because they've got no choice. I, I, it's worldwide, Sam. It's not just yeah. any country. It's just the way things yeah. are at the moment. Yeah. One of the things, I guess, that comes to mind for me with stealth camping or boondocking is another word that I use for it. boondocking, probably more wild camping than stealth camping. But when I'm traveling solo, I'm a little bit more leery of it than if I'm traveling with a, maybe one other person, at least. Um, yeah. As a female traveling alone, I really don't lean towards stealth camping at all. First of all, I think there's a little bit of misconception. I think in other countries, what you think of as stealth camping may not be as secretive or stealthy as you think it is because there are very often a lot of eyes on every corner of um, a landscape in other countries to a degree um, much, much higher than what we're used to in our own country. So you think you've found this little, you know, hidden kind of corner, but it may be where a goat herder comes in every morning to water his goats. And so it's hard to say, you know, what's going to come through for traffic. 
But as far as, you know, traveling alone as a female, I don't often stealth camp because I, I would hate to put myself in a situation where I'm away from other people. Um, and I always kind of hope that if I'm at least around a campsite or in a place where, you know, hopefully forbid nothing happens, but if something happened, I'm a believer in the theory of safety and numbers and that maybe another person would come and help me out. And if I were way off the beaten track alone, I'd probably feel less comfortable so that it's a topic mm-hmm. that I, I don't necessarily pursue stealth camping as much unless I'm with at least one other person or maybe a small group. I've done it before. Um, certainly, I think of it more as wild camping, but I've done some intentionally stealth camping down in South America, um, but in places that I felt pretty comfortable that nothing was going to happen. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. Safety is a big thing for sure, especially for women. When yeah. I, before, and I, I was just going to ask about safety. As a matter of fact, I was just going to ask about that and saying the safety considerations, because that is something anytime you're not in an organized campground, there's always potential for, for safety problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've never, ever had an issue. There have been mornings when I've woken up and I've undone the zip of my tent and there's been somebody standing there and they've just been curious. Yeah. They've given you a smile and a good morning and off they've gone. And it's been as simple as that. But yeah, you have to be careful. When, before I started heading down to Africa, somebody said to me, Sam, just bear in mind that everywhere is somebody's backyard. Mm. True. And I never forgot that. Yeah, that's, that's right. I remember we pulled over on a little side road in Africa somewhere. I can't remember what country it was, but it was a it was a nothing road. There was we hadn't seen a car for an hour. We pulled over, bathroom break, and thirty seconds. And there was a, a young girl, maybe ten years old, and her six year old brother. And they were standing there, walked right out of the bush and looked at us. And, you know, wanted to know what we were doing, where we were going. <laughs> you know, like. There's nobody here. It's place is <laughs> deserted. We haven't seen anybody for an hour. Come on. And all of a sudden, it's out of the bush. Mm-hmm. Yep. Happens all the time. I think that there's, um, there's a good way to deal with it if you do get caught, in inverted commas, um, found. And if somebody's not happy with you being there, then straight away, sincerely apologize and just explain that you didn't think anybody would mind as it's a de- deserted spot and that you will leave nothing behind except for your tire tracks. It's that old saying. And sometimes you might have to go to, if it's somebody official, just explain that, you know, you're too tired to ride on and you're doing an extended trip on a tight budget and you're just very, very grateful if it would be be possible. Um, And there are other times where saying that you'll pack up and go, um, though, would it possibly be okay to stay until dawn and and then you'll be gone? I've had people say to me, yes, I've had police say that to me. Um, And what Brian was saying um, uh, earlier on about the, the policeman, um, I quite often go to a, a tourist office or find a policeman and just say, is there anywhere that you can guide me to that I can um, camp out in the wild? And I've never had a no. Yeah. Mm, I, I, it, was, it, was, it was common in the outback that uh, if you were travelling into a town, you go to the police station and ask them, and quite often you could camp in your backyard. Mm-hmm. You know? No no problem at all. Yeah. Uh, that, that used to be the case. But a little funny story, which is a little bit off topic. Chill and I were talking about, you know, uh, not uh, putting something in, putting a camp in the wrong spot and getting caught out. This was about, uh, there was a television crew with a, in a helicopter flew to an area to get a story. The helicopter pilot decided to, oh, there's a, there's a vacant paddock. I'll put that chopper down there. And they went off to do their story and they came back and the farmer had chained the helicopter 
down to a fence. He <laughs> 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 gave permission hey, to, so- to, to, to stay there, so he chained it down. I think it. Uh, I think money changed hands to get the helicopter free. <laughs> I would think. <laughs> yeah. Grant, uh, yes. does, it, does it work in in the in Canada as it does in so many small towns in the USA, where um, it's perfectly okay to to camp in the town park as long as you've asked? Does it work that way in Canada too? We we never uh, did it. I don't know. I've never done it. I've never asked. It's never occurred to me to ask. Um, but I've never had a problem finding a place to camp. What about you, Jim? I, I did camp in one uh, many, many years ago. Now this is this is when I was on a, a bicycle trip when I was that's in grade seven, I think, grade seven or eight, something like that. But it's not a bicycle trip. But anyway, I we camped in the in the city, not the city. It's not a city, but I mean, it's it's a park in a town. And uh, the police came by and said you can't do it. They didn't tell us to leave. They said it's fine. They they saw what we were just. I mean, to them, just young kids at the time, and, and it was fine. They said, just keep your fire low. We had a fire too, by the way. <laughs> uh, keep your fire low, they said, so, you know, it's not so obvious. And, and they said, um, and just, you know, don't make a mess, which we weren't, right? Um, it was fine. But I think generally they don't let you. I, I think they're like, yeah, I mean, obviously every place will be individual, but I, I don't think that's a thing across Canada. Yeah, I don't think so either. I, I would not, ask, you know, like I say, I have never asked. It wouldn't occur to me to ask. It's just... It depends on the size of the park, of course. I mean, I can think of a couple of town parks that are big and would be no problem and you'd be well hidden. But most of them are quite small in town because there's so much forest outside. You don't need a big park in town for a small town. So, yeah. Michelle introduced me to um, a couple, Linda and Craig, and I stayed with them um, just after I'd done my presentation at, um, in, in Minnesota. And what a brilliant couple these two are. They're avid travelers. And um, they're really helpful. They just do anything to help other other people who are traveling and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, Michelle's done some riding with them. And um, yeah, um, she says that these these guys are really good at it. But um, the reason I started bringing this subject up was because Linda made me smile because um, she brought out two books and these two books were almost identical. They were same titles and so on to books that Birgit and I found when we were coming through um, uh, USA and Canada. And one was free campsites of, of America and the other one was campsites under $5. And it was just amazing to see these because it just cracked me up um, because they were so helpful. And these books were taking us to places where it was okay to camp but it was just camping in the middle of nowhere. And the directions that you'd get would be, go along um, the XYZ road for three miles. Uh, At the tall tree, turn left onto a gravel track. Go for four miles down that gravel track. You'll come to some boulders. Work your way through those boulders, and you'll be camping right next door to the river. And what a fantastic book that was. Um, well, both of them. The $5 one um, was taking us to places like uh, camping at rodeo grounds. And there you were allowed to use the showers and so on from, you know, from the rodeo days, which were just brilliant. But I mean, now there are things like Dirt, which is spelled D-Y-R-T, and I Overlander um, for finding places like that. And they're very good. I've used Dirt um, several times on this trip. Um, if they're more popular and there are more reviews... Then I found that, um, as the guys were talking about just now, um, you end up with toilet paper and and that sort of stuff, which is just such a shame. But if they've got less reviews, then obviously less people go to these spots, and they've been brilliant. 
Sounds like the old mm-hmm. Lonely Planet effect. As soon as a place is cool and gets into the Lonely Planet, mm-hmm. it turns out to be not so nice and the prices go up yeah. and everybody's rude. Yes. Yep. Well, we've talked about that before. Sure. I, I've given you my my thought process on it and what we've run into with it as well. And, and it's unfortunate, but the thing is with these little spots is they're not they're not developed enough. They're not big enough. They obviously have no facilities to handle a lot of traffic. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately that's what you get with this sort of thing with an app where everyone can just look at it and, and, you know, divert their travels to go to this one little spot. And, yeah, and then it gets overrun. It's a, uh, it's a real problem. Yeah, yeah. I much prefer to just wild camp and find my own. In Australia, some of those places that Sam was talking about, like the, where they prepare stuff for roadworks and things, they actually have limits as to how long you can stay there. I mean, obviously yeah. not for people in a tent, but that wouldn't apply so much. But people in vans who are looking for cheap places to stay, you know, you can stay at somewhere like that, but you can only stay two nights. And there's there's well, quite there's an extensive, there. I mean, there's wiki camps and there's all sorts of apps that you can get plus budget camping books that gives people clues like that. Mm. And I've used a uh, website freecampsites.net in the u.s and i think i've got an app for it too that i use for scouting out free places but yes hopefully there's you know a a trend towards being more respectful i in the future about where people are camping and if there's no facilities that doesn't mean that you don't you still treat the place with respect especially you should then carry everything out with you and as sam said uh, leave only tire tracks it's, I mean, it is so easy to do. For we motorcyclists, most of us carry tire irons. I used to carry a little trowel as well. Um, but now I use a tire iron and it digs a hole. Um, I carry a Ziploc bag and my paper goes in the Ziploc bag or, you know, just to carry a bag. Um, and then when I get to somewhere that I can trash it, then I trash it. It's so simple. It's, it's not rocket science. And it mm-hmm. really upsets me when I see people that just don't think this through. That's yeah. true. And they, mostly they don't care. Go back to the days of using leaves. Yeah. Yeah, but not poison oak and things. Or like I said before, stop, drop, and drag. It's a very simple thing oh. you can do. <laughs> I think I might have picked that up from the dogs, actually. <laughs> I think about it, but, but it's effective, right? I mean, I don't know if it's effective. Don't get me well, wrong. I was going to say, Jim, hang on a minute. <laughs> Let's just move on. Okay? I've just conjured up another image that I really don't want to have conjured up. <laughs> How about, um, we, we sort of touched on this a little bit um, as far as safety goes, is as far as personal safety goes. And I think Michelle nailed it really with what she was saying. And I think that's, that's a, a very good point that we have to keep in mind. All of us have to keep in mind for any sort of stealth camping. But I was thinking back to Sam saying he was drying his tent out. And I was thinking, what about other safety concerns that, um, that you, you guys as experienced campers know, you know, like, um, I think Michelle, you, you talked uh, a couple episodes ago, you'd mentioned about camping in, um, in, in a, a nice place that you had that little depression that you, that you could camp into <laughs> that might end up flooding out on you. So those type of things, and maybe, maybe we can start with that with you, Michelle, and then talk about some other precautions, just things you guys have learned about camping, some things you may want to be wary of for someone who doesn't know. Oh, for sure. The place that comes to mind that I was referring to was actually down in Baja. There's a lot of, in that part of the world, in Mexico and and other Latin American countries, they have a term called arroyo. And arroyo is like a dry creek bed, but um, is one that is definitely a formed channel for 
water drainage if some thunderstorms or flash storms come through the area. So they're very prone to flash flooding. So an arroyo is definitely not a word that you're looking for when you're choosing a campsite. Um, be aware of what the weather forecast looks don't, like. Don't mistake that for campsite. That's right. <laughs> that, <Yeah. laughs> that is definitely not it. Um, and that's, that's something that's, you know, obviously we need to watch out for. I've also camped on a beach and, um, years ago, this was actually, um, not, this was a car camping experience, but camped, um, at low tide, pitched our tent and then didn't realize that high tide was going to be coming in. And I I know I'm not proud. (laughs) <laughs> but I, I learned the lesson and I've not repeated it as a motorcycle traveler. So just those basic yeah. things, but really, you know, understanding, you know, what the weather's going to do to affect where you're at, um, you know, and, and all of that. That's, that's one of the basics. You know, Michelle, you, you mentioned about the tide thing and Shirley laughed. And I thought, you know, <laughs> because you guys know that I used to do tourism. And so we had people out in tidal zones that weren't used to tidal zones. Many people call them flatlanders, but they don't have to be flatlanders. But so they don't understand that they're, the tides are there. And I can't tell you how many people I've heard tell me that they don't believe me that the tide comes up this high. No, it doesn't. And I'll say, <laughs> no, it actually does come up this high. And they'll say, no, it doesn't. They'll look at it and they'll say, like, they're actually telling me I'm wrong. I'm I'm sorry you're the guide, I know, but there's something wrong with you because you don't understand this is impossible. It cannot come up this high. Well, it does come up that high, right? So um, yeah. it's one of those things that until you actually experience it, it, it seems ridiculous. So, I mean, I don't blame you. Like, I don't think it's silly that you camp there, Michelle, that you didn't know about high tide because it, it seems ridiculous that you can have water go so far out and then come so far back in unless you know about it. Yeah. And especially when it's a really slow incline where it's not a very shallow place, it can come in hundreds of yards to get to you. It's, it's amazing. And I'm from South Dakota and that's my excuse. I'm a flatlander for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you live on the coast, you're, you're used to it. Um, I mean, I grew up on a beach where it was, wasn't just a couple of hundred yards. It was more like four or 500 yards at low tide and coming into high tide. And you got used to this concept that water comes a long, long, long way. And boy, does it come fast when it's that low, uh, that uh, flat too. It's like really mm-hmm. quick. People it's, have it's, lost cars in those waters, bikes, oh, yeah. you know, all kinds of stuff has just gone sucked into the sand. You get stuck out there when the tide's coming and you're done. Yeah. Uh, look, the other issue is um, knowing your environment uh, over, over where you are. Bears, uh, when you're wild camp, you know, if you're in places where there's bears, they'll, they'll go for food. Uh, we were talking to people in Alaska who said, Yeah, we've seen panniers ripped apart where bears could smell food in a pannier. Um, and here in Australia, you have um, crocodiles up in the north, up around the Jardine River, up in the north. Um, you're advised not to camp near the water because uh, um, saltwater crocs will come out um, over night time. Um, and you're better off camping away from it. And they move very quickly. They're pretty quick. They look sluggish. Pretty quick over the ground. Hang on a second. There's a fundamental difference here between North Americans and Australians that I just discovered here because you have crocodiles that come out at night and you recommend or you recommend that people don't camp. Well, you probably shouldn't camp there because the crocodiles go. I think you have a a higher level of tolerance. (laughs) Well, the the crocs get hungry, you know. It's it's the Australian (laughs) way. To understate? 
Can I just yeah. talk, uh, tell a story about safety and camping? And some people would have read about this, some people will have experienced it, and that's in Siberia. The chain of camp um, houses, oh, yeah. clubhouses, motorcycle group clubhouses across Siberia where travels are, travellers are encouraged to stay after a young man was while camping outside of the town of Magotcha and was murdered. Um, and his, his friends, his riding companions said this is just, he was murdered by a batshit crazy person who, you know, ended up, there was so many stories about people in the town protecting this crazy person who then their um, business mysteriously burnt to the ground. There was a bit of argy-bargy going on after this young man was murdered. But these young motorcyclists have organised land. They've built buildings with big fences for you to put your bike behind um, and they encourage travellers. If they see travellers on the road, they will say to them, come to our town, come to our clubhouse and stay the night here. Do not camp in the wild because it can be dangerous. And the Magotcha Iron Angels rescued Brian and I on a really bleak night in Siberia. And while it was uh, rustic accommodation in the extreme, um, running water wasn't actually on the agenda, but they had a bed for us, they had food for us, they took us into town where we were able to buy some more provisions and had dinner with them in a cafe and then went back and exchanged tales until the wee small hours. Um, And that network has probably saved lots of lives and you go you can go from one town to the next to the next staying in these with like-minded people who care about your safety yep. that's an amazing path through there can, can i just do a quick commercial plug here because this was brian and shirley's chapter that this this story um in the moment collectors and um, what a wonderful story it is it's really heartwarming and you know where a lot of people are, are worried about traveling in russia and places like that um this just brings it home to all of us that people are people there are good people out there and they really want to take care of you i remember when you were describing your your trepidation at being sort of led into the the back alleyways in the dark yes. and by these these characters but how you followed your instincts. And what a wonderful story that is. Absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Sam. Moment yeah. Collectors, available at a store near you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was a bit sneaky of me, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now you threw it out there. Where, where, where did we get Moment Collectors? Oh, you can get it from Amazon or you can get it direct from us um, from www.sam-manicum.com. There we are. Thank you, Jim. That's the full plug there. I hope you don't mind me doing that, Shirley. Not at all, and I didn't actually even think of that when I told the story. It's just to me, a, a, it's a salutary tale that you do have to be careful. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other things that you know I, I popped down when when I was thinking about this, and it started off. I mentioned Linda and Craig earlier on. Craig's dry comment to me was, "If you camp in the national park, don't be surprised if a bison meets you for breakfast." <laughs> yep. mm. yeah, yeah. He said, you know, these guys are just out wandering around and you could quite happily unzip the front of your tent and there you've got bison buffalo um, standing um, along with his mates in front of your tent wondering who on earth is camping in their area. But um, that's, just, that's one of the joys of camping in a national park. The mm-hmm. other joy being a motorcyclist in a national park is the advice they give you. Uh, if you see a bear, 
bang your saucepan lids together, or we didn't actually have saucepans or lids to bang together to disturb the bear, and the other one was to return to your vehicle and lock the door. Well, we didn't have doors. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, well, we all know what it, they call uh, motorcyclists in the African national parks, don't we? Take away. Wheels on wheels. Wheels on wheels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about when we were, we were walking through the jungle, Shirley? What was the advice um, in Nepal? Did you carry a stick? Oh, they gave you a pointy stick, which I thought was excellent going into tiger country with a pointy stick. And they gave you advice. One, one animal you had to stand still and the other one run and climb to the highest point. And within 25 seconds of me being told that, I couldn't remember which was which. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, I was fairly um, stymied because I was either going to run and something was going to chase me or I was going to stand still and it was going to eat me alive and all I was armed with was a pointed stick. <laughs> it was like being in the middle of a Monty Python sketch, Sam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That. I, another wonderful image has just been created. <laughs> <laughs> I did get a warning in the states: don't camp in that, don't camp in that area because um, there are snakes around. And um, oh, later that's on that everywhere day, in Australia. Yeah, um, red ants. Um, oh, yeah. There, there was um, a place that many overlanders used to stay in Lilongwe, in um, which is the capital city of Malawi. And it was the house at the golf club. But what they didn't tell you was that the area that um, they were suggesting you camp um, was um, surrounded by red ants' nests. And these things would not be so interested in the humans, but they would love the taste of tents. So if you lay still long enough in your tent, you could actually see these things eating it oh. around you. <laughs> yeah. I remember camping in Tahiti on the beach and waking up to. This noise and the tent's shaking a little bit. What the hell? Looked outside the tent and these giant cl- uh, crabs, like, I mean, giant crabs. The things were 10, 12 inches across with a huge claw the size of my hand. And they were trying to open, get through the tent and chew into it. It was just like, <laughs> wow, is that freaky when you just look out? And it's right at eye level, too, when you're just kind of look, poking out your head. Out. You should have got oh. to eat them first. Well, we thought about that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there yeah, was quite a few of them, too. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we actually got out of the tent and wandered around just to see what was going on, and there must have been 50 crabs on our beach. Wow. It was just crazy. But oh, it was oh. our private beach. There was nobody there. Yeah. We, we were camping. I-, I was with a couple of mates who we were camping at a little place called Angler's Rest, and uh, we set up at camp, and uh, we go for a ride through the beautiful mountains and come back, and the the place is known to have a lot of snakes around it. There's a creek, and, you know, it's hot. Snakes would look for water. And as we're going, riding back, I could see a couple of red belly black snakes um, crossing the road. And as we pulled into our camps, I, I saw one disappear under my mate's tent. Uh. Now, red belly black snakes, are, 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 they're pretty docile. You've basically got to sit on them to, for them to eat you or bite you. But you um, can make them angry. You can make them angry. Yeah, that's okay. How do you make like, a, a red-bellied black snake angry? Getting into your tent and standing on it while it's underneath. <laughs> well, they like, nice, <laughs> yeah, they like nice warm places, so they get underneath the tent, you see. Uh. So, I, I, so it's no real harm. You're just sleeping with a snake. Well, <laughs> it's, it's underneath the tent. 
but and I, I I thought I'd better let Darren know that just in case. So he's ripped his tent up and he's shaking <laughs> it around and <laughs> took him another half an hour to reset his tent up. But one thing you never do in Australia is never leave your tent open. Always okay. zip it and close it because snakes and uh, things like that will look for nice warm places. Mm. And and the reason you in in North America you you do the same thing you zip it close is because you'll have all kinds of bugs in there yeah, yeah. You know, mosquitoes and black flies and deer flies and depending on what the season is so a lot of people do that they open up their tents and they leave them wide open they also lay their bedding out and they leave it open in in my mind you uh, do not take right. your bedding out until you're ready to get in bed because it's just going to absorb moisture as the, as the night cools it's like and putting by the time you go to get into bed putting your helmet down on the ground like. Open inside yep. on the ground. That's a good mm-hmm. way to get bugs yeah. inside your helmet, which is excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That ain't done, rough. It's hands. Brian, I wanted to ask you so, how do you deal, in all seriousness, how do you deal with snakes? Like, like what do you, what's your precautions? How do you, oh. how do you deal with it when you're camping? I make a lot of noise, basically. Um, <laughs> you know, it, don't, don't, don't sneak around, you know, put your boots on, don't walk around with bare feet. Um, and just um, oh, that's that's about all you can do. They don't like noise. They don't like to be around you. So, um, you know, don't try and um, be stealthy, I suppose. So be noisy. Keep your tent closed. And you mentioned there you just said snakes will go for water. Is, is that is that well, a common thing where snakes well, are heading? Yeah, well, it is in hot weather. When you're getting 40-plus degrees, they're looking for water like everybody else, you know, and they're good swimmers mm-hmm. too. They're really good swimmers. Yeah. So uh, don't think you're going you're to be safe running away from a snake and getting in water because they'll swim. Um, and they do say never get between a snake uh, and water or a snake and their nest. Um, yeah. Or, but they don't put signs out saying creek behind this bush, I'm <laughs> heading that way. Or, yeah, or, or snake nest. My nest is under the there. third tree. <laughs> yes. I think we have rattlesnakes in this part of the world. And one of the things we don't do is if you're setting up your tent, you know, near trees or you're you're maybe gathering rocks to drive in like a a tent tent peg or something like that. Just be careful where you're reaching for things. So don't reach like the base of a tree or pick up a rock because sometimes snakes here are coiled up under or around rocks. Um, and they warm mm. up on those too. So just something to be careful of. And I don't leave my boots outside of my tent. Um, no, I take no. them off yeah. and yeah, and maybe air them out admittedly if they need it. But then I bring them in at night in the tent because I don't want any creepy crawlies crawling into my boots. Yeah. Wow. You are tough. Yeah. Riding gear inside. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Keep <laughs> your boots inside there. That's if right. They're, if, if they're that smelly, Michelle, um, the mirror stalks on a motorbike are good to hang them upside down on. Ah, there you go. No, mine aren't bad. Mm. Remember, I had that trick with alcohol. So yeah. you don't, uh, oh, that's right. don't have bacteria that's on your right. feet. So I don't have yeah. smelly boots, but thank you. Well, washing, washing your feet from the inside is just brilliant, isn't it? Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, did I get a, oh, Sam from you then. Brilliant. You did, you did. I just, I didn't have the strength to say it out loud. Um, there are some other basics here um not camping under trees if rain is expected because those drips in the nighttime um, long after it's stopped raining um they can keep you awake and also it means a long time to dry your tent out in the morning um and i always have a look up uh, above where i'm putting the tent if if 
trees are us, then just have a look for um, no dead branches and things like that, but also um, things that can fall down. I mean, I'm used to mangoes and coconuts and things like that, but I've discovered black walnuts in the States, and my goodness, they can hit the deck with a big thumb. But one of the things that I try and do is to look for the direction of the sunrise, either because I want to sleep in, and so I want to hide by, behind something that's um, between me and um, the east, um, but also because you may want to be on the sunny side in the morning because you want your tent to dry out quickly and you want to lie in your tent and just watch the sunlight come up. Um, another one is just, I mean, these are really basics, but for people who are just starting out, hopefully they're useful. Do check for how soft the ground is and don't park your bike too close to your tent because if it topples over in the night, yeah, well, you're not you're going to be a bit of a mess in the morning. So park far enough away from your bike. If it does fall, it's not going to do so on you or your tent. And also look out for anybody else that's parking next um, their tent and bike next door to um, sorry, parking their tent next door to your bike and give them the warning that that's what might happen too. I mean, they're just such basics, but they all matter, don't they? It's amazing Sam, that Sam, parking Sam, bike. You just, you just brought back wonderful memories of mine. The last time we went camping with some mates, uh, we, were, we were having a great night and um, it, it started to rain and I had my bike near my tent, not uh, exactly that, not close enough so if, if it fell over. And guess what? Um, as it rained and rained and rained and rained, the bike did tip, uh, tip over on, it, on the stand and smash mm. in the middle of the night and so I had to get up. Here I am wandering around in my jocks and my bike boots, uh, getting soaked wet, <laughs> lifting my bike up. <laughs> no one else got out of bed to help. There's an image you'll never ah. forget. Um, no, I, I'm going to try. We're into image this show, aren't we? With the um, under trees, Sam, in Australia on a still day, yeah. do not camp under a gum tree no. because that's when they will drop their branches on yeah. a still day. That's really oh, wow. interesting to know. That's I did that. I parked um, my bike under a tree um, on this trip in the States. Fortunately, I put um, my bike cover on. In the morning, it was just covered in really sticky stuff. And here's a tip yeah. that Michelle taught me. Um, hand sanitizer gel will clean that stuff off. I was absolutely gobsmacked, but it's totally efficient. It was tree sap, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm, tree yeah. sap. Tree sap, yeah. I never park under a tent, under a tree if I can possibly help it yeah. for exactly that reason. I spent so many hours cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. Mm. Well, well, you get that from, from coniferous trees, not deciduous trees. Yeah. I don't know what this tree was, but it, it didn't look like an evergreen. It had sort of leaf-shaped leaves, if you will. There are some elms that actually have kind of a just – a tiny little droplets. It's almost like a mist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what Sam had. Yeah. Um, oh, so it and wasn't is that like sticky? Big droplets. Yeah. Really? As in my bike cover, then when I folded it up the next day, I literally had to pull it apart um, when I was <laughs> trying to open it up to use because it was so stuck together. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, that was the first. But yeah, hand sanitizer gel. Cool. Another huh? second use for something, Sam? Yes. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> You know, another thing you can use, this is really off topic, but I'm going to throw it out there. This hand sanitizer for it's just something that we found out recently. You know, you get a mark on your wood table and you, and you can't get the mark, like, you know, from a cup sitting there, somebody's put a wet cup down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You put the hand sanitizer on top of the cloth. You put the cloth on top of the, the mark. Don't touch the, the hand sanitizer doesn't soak through. It just sits there. It draws the moisture out of the table and it's gone like magic. Wow. Try it. Wow. See it works. Nice. Okay. Yeah. 
No, it wasn't my tip. I, we I, we got it from somebody else, but I, but I, and I was just so impressed with it. I thought, wow, what an amazing thing! Just incredible. I'm looking at my outside table, like which has got a lot of those marks. I'm going to try that. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Report back yeah. next time. Yeah. We expect yeah. a report. <laughs> Tell us. We'll we'll start covering maybe woodworking after this. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so let, let's take a break. I got a couple of things that I, that I want to talk about. And when we come back, we'll continue on with our camping thing. And then we'll go on and talk about um, some more technical aspects of planning for worn out parts on motorcycles. Stay with us. Freshtracks.co.uk Fresh Tracks works with companies or groups to motivate, inspire, and build communication skills through team building. They work with companies like Mars, Pfizer, Comic Relief, and many, many more. The website is freshtracks.co.uk. And anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio Raw. That's freshtracks.co.uk. You know, I think today as riders, we're probably better informed than any other time in history. We understand how to dress to try and be as safe as we can. We understand about being seen on the road. We also understand how other drivers cannot see us, and we're aware of that. All these things help make us ride safer, sort of tools in our riding toolbox. Another tool is to understand just what insurance you should have and how that covers you if you were involved in a crash and what you should do if you were. Well, that brings me to this next thing. Cass and Moses is a law firm that specializes in representing motorcycles, and they've been doing it for over 30 years. That is a load of experience there. Now, this is one of those tips that you should be writing down because a contact like this can be priceless. Cass and Moses understands riding, they understand riders, and they understand the law surrounding it. And they say that if you've been in a crash, even if you don't think it's your fault, you should call them. Now grab a pen because I'm going to give you the phone number in a minute. The other way you can benefit from Cass and Moses is to visit their website. Cassandmoses.com is the website. They've got information on there that instructs you what to do if you are involved in a crash. And this, this could be key for you in the long run, learning what to do in those first few minutes. And don't wait until it happens to you actually need the information because obviously then it's too late. Read it now. Write it down so that you're prepared. It's the same thing as wearing the gear. You wear the gear just in case you need it so it's there the moment you need it. Also, on their website, they have a free book you can get. It's called Standing Up for Bikers That Go Down. Many riders aren't well informed about the kinds of insurance that they, have, they should have on their motorcycle. And that can result in a catastrophic situation if something happens. The book explains this as well as it has stories in there from over 30 years of representing injured motorcyclists. Cassandmoses.com is the website. The phone number is 1-800-MOTORCYCLE. Easy to remember, 1-800-MOTORCYCLE. So just like being at GAT, wearing bright clothing, adding auxiliary lighting to your bike so that you're seen, familiarize yourself with CassandMoses.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there also that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio Raw. CassandMoses.com. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about packing for camping. 
and maybe see we can glean some tips from what you've what you guys have learned from your experience of packing over and over again day after day what um let's start with essential gear what essential gear do you guys recommend for motorcycle camping or is there any oh you gotta have a good bed good bed mm-hmm. good tent yeah. Just basic stuff. Basics, very basic. Basics, tent, sleep tent. You got to be warm and dry. Yeah. That's warm the basic. And dry. Warm yeah. and dry. I mean, it's yeah. a good tent or whatever method you want to use. There's bivvies and hammocks, et cetera. And you've got to be comfortable. That means you need something soft underneath you and you need to be warm. And don't believe sleeping bags manufacturers when they tell you what the number, what temperature that sleeping bag is good to. Correct. Yeah, and, and yeah that's for survival. Just, just yeah, survival, exactly. Minimal yeah, that's right. of, of a three-season sleeping bag. And that, that's one of the ways that, for me, is more reliable to, to, to hunt out a sleeping bag. And I look for the same um, with a tent, too. I mean, if I'm traveling on my own, then it's a two-person tent. And if there's um, me and Birgit, then it's a three-person tent. But um, always look for a three- to four-season tent. Yeah, it's a little bit heavier. But it'll whatever the world wants to throw at you when you're camping, you've got your little safe haven that you can climb in and there are enough guidelines and it's waterproof enough. And and one of the things that people don't tend to look at with a tent is the hydrostatic rating. You can have a tent that looks really, really nice. Um, but when you look at the hydrostatic rating, if they show it, then it's about 2,500. You need to be looking for at least 5,000 because that's what's going to put you up with a storm. What on earth does that mean, Sam? Um, it means the pressure of water that will be hitting your tent. So the okay. higher the hydrostatic rating, the more rain your tent and the, the more pounding it can take. Okay. So they take the material and they put a, a column of water on top of it and they keep adding water in the column and measure the, the millimeters that it, that it goes up until it starts leaking through. Yep. Okay. Yep, exactly. Thank you. On the other hand, a friend of mine who's living on a very, very tiny budget, he does about a $100 tent and he buys a new one every two to three years and he spends two to three months camping every year. And he says that works just fine. I know plenty of people that buy, you know, tents from um, from Walmart and places like yep. that and they actually have no problems at all with them. You know, the thing is with this is, is it, it, we can get it, we can follow this with everything. A lot of times people will assume that the gear makes it really, it's the knowledge because I mean, you can go camping with very little. If you understand what you're doing, you understand how to keep yourself dry, how to keep your tent dry, which, you know, may, may entail using a, a tarp if you're using a very cheap tent and it can be a cheap tarp as well. But if you understand those things, you'll be just fine. You don't have to necessarily get the best gear. Like, like one of the things I would really recommend with camping is, is I would recommend learning something about it rather than just going out and buying the best gear that you can buy, which is great. But rather than just go buying the best gear that you can buy, learn how to camp first, do a little research into it, learn about camping. And that will take you a long way. And and like you're saying, your example of the, the guy who buys the cheap tent, which by most people's standards will not hold up. You know, you have the first rain you get, you're going to get soaked because the fly's not big enough. It doesn't do full coverage. It's not, it doesn't have a, a high enough um, waterproofing on it. The seams won't be sealed. It may have seams in the, in the floor instead of being a tub floor. There's so many issues with it. But if you know what you're doing, you can be comfortable. Yep. And he's obviously, he's obviously worked it out because he's been doing this for years. He does take a cheap $20 tarp and puts it over top of the tent, ties it to a tree or two, and he carries 
um, hiking poles, which she guy wires down, and that gives him a dry area, like a porch outside of his tent and covers the tent. Nice one. And it works great mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. If it's too sunny, he's got shade. If it's raining, he's got he's he's covered. He can yeah. cook outside underneath the tarp. It's fine. That's right. Essentially, the tent is then to keep bugs out. So if if it's got a screen on, it's going to keep the bugs out. Maybe not noceums, but it'll keep the the larger bugs out. Yep. And um, away you go. Yeah, works fine. So you you can do it very cheap. I mean, his total setup is about one hundred and seventy five dollars. Mm-hmm. Hiking poles, tarp, tent, everything. I've seen really good um, cheap tents, and one of the reasons why I think they're good is because they've got guy lines, um, lots of them, and they're all mm-hmm. in very logical places. And I've seen some expensive tents where they just aren't enough. They won't hold you down in a strong wind. And, well, what's the point in that? Like I say, you've got to be able to climb in your tent and feel safe. That's a good point. And there again, it goes back to understanding camping and what you're doing because you can add some tie lines to a, um, a, you know, a tent that doesn't have enough tie lines. Yep. But I mean, it's, it's all part of that, you know, understanding what you're doing rather than just counting on the equipment to rescue you. Yeah. And having, having a bit of a think too. I remember a tent I had a few years ago. Um, it was a little light on guy lines, but there was these little tiny webbing loops at various spots around the tent. You, know, you kind of look at it and then the average person would say, what's that for? Well, I finally clued in when I was looking at it one day. Wait a minute, you're supposed to tie a rope to that. It didn't come with extra guy lines for it, but they mm-hmm. were there mm-hmm. if you realized, oh, yes, I should put guy lines on those. And I make a point of getting reflective guy lines too. I hate tripping on oh, guy lines. Yes. In it. <laughs> yeah. Such a good tip. That is a great tip. You know, and that reminds me of something else. I bought a tent and in, in just really never bothered to learn some of the intricacies of that particular tent. And there was a little bitty Velcro kind of a, uh, an opening that was Velcroed shut and it had a tiny, maybe six inch section of a tent pole attached to it. And that was used to Velcro and hold that window open or hold that, that slot or that slice in the fly open. And what it was doing was allowing breathability. So I wasn't building up condensation on the inside roof of my tent. Um, mm-hmm. So yes. learning how to vent it properly to keep that from happening too. And again, that just goes back to your point, Jim, of, of you know, learning about it and understanding the gear and, and what it is. There are some tents out there that have a lot of really nice features and I, I don't know all of them. So if I take a few minutes to actually learn how they're supposed to be properly used, it can make a big world of difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, read that piece of paper that comes with it. it might be something <laughs> oh useful in there. Oh my goodness gracious! <laughs> <laughs> well, and anymore, you can watch the YouTube video. Yeah. And the other thing is, once you bought a tent, or even before you're doing it, go to YouTube and do some research on it. People will do reviews. They'll go into detail on it. They'll explain everything. They'll set it all up. They'll show you the features, the little tricks. You can learn a ton of stuff from that. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think for me, I really like to have flexibility in the tent. So I appreciate Sam's point of having a three season tent. Um, I want one that's maybe got some more venting. I like two doors, not just one. Um, I like a vestibule so I can store gear that's out of the rain, but not necessarily in my tent. Um, I like a low profile tent, especially if I'm going to be someplace where I'm exposed to wind um, so that it's flapping less in the wind. And and obviously if it's tied down well, hopefully that's doesn't happen anyway. Um, but the same is true for bedding. I appreciate 
having a little flexibility there, depending on what the climate is like. And even in the same campsite, one day may be really sunny and warm and the next day might be cool and rainy. So I take along a a sleeping bag liner. That's a couple of benefits from that, that it's washable. I don't necessarily have to wash my sleeping bag if I'm washing the liner, but if it's a really hot evening or hot night, or if I'm in the tropics, I can use that sleeping bag liner as my sleeping bag and sleep on top of the sleeping bag. So I'm, I'm a bit cooler. Um, but that if also I doubles up very nicely as a sarong for dashes to the loo in the night. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> um, but then if I, if I double them up, I'm, I'm even warmer because my liner adds, I think something like five degrees Celsius, 10 degrees Fahrenheit to the warmth of my bag. So um, that makes a big difference. Yeah. They're also very handy if you are staying in cheap accommodation and the sheets look a bit shabby. Mm-hmm. Oh, sleep yeah. in your sleeping bag liner. Sleeping in my own filth again, it comes up. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's better. We'll often use a ground sheet on a, on a somewhat suspect tent um, yeah. bed in a hotel. Yeah. yeah. Just put the ground sheet down and sleep on top of that. It's fine. But um, our probably our big tip for camping, if, you're, if there's two of you, you can get sleeping bags that zip together, and often you can get one that's quite a light summer weight and another one that's a three-season weight, and you just flip it over as appropriate. That works yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's smart. Yep. And definitely, if there's two of you, you need um, openings on both sides of the tent. Oh, it's, yes. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. a must. Yeah. And a vestibule on both sides. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And lots of muzzy. And one of the things that's good about having um, – mosquito netting on both your doors is when it's really hot, um, you can get a nice draft going through. And I know quite a lot of people camp without putting um, the fly sheet on their tent, but I always put mine up if I've got enough um, mosquito netting, then I can get more than enough breeze blowing through. And the fly sheet actually, the distance between the fly sheet and the tent inner um, normally gives um, a pretty good um, shade effect, which of course you don't get if you're just camping with the mozzie netting. Yeah, it's nice to see the stars. I understand the the desire to it because I've done lots of camping just, you know, with a sleeping bag, you know, laying on the ground. But um, you are susceptible, of course, to obviously when it rains or, you know, anything comes down onto your tent in the middle of the night, like Brian's story of, of it raining, not so much the bike, but I mean, if it's pouring rain and you have to put on your fly, mm-hmm. that doesn't yeah. fly. Yeah. That doesn't go. Oh, it's, it's, I, I'll take that out, Shirley. Uh, <laughs> but that, that's a horrible Jim, thing to have to do. You just got a Shirley accolade. You've got a groan. <laughs> <laughs> I did. But yeah. I agree with her. Yeah. Yes. Our tent, um, you can lift the fly halfway up. So if it's a hot night, and yeah. they're really good. Um, yeah. It's just a clip on each corner. The, the big Agnes is great. And yeah. uh, plenty of ventilation points in it too. Yeah, nice. Just going back to, um, to to rain and so on. Um, ground sheets. Something that always puzzles me is that I see people that have got the understanding of camping that means that they're not relying just on the the, um, the base of their tent, um, but they're putting a ground sheet underneath it to protect from little sharp stones and, and you know pointy <laughs> sticks and things like that. But they don't cut the ground sheet to the size of the base of their tent. So when it rains, the rain just drops off the fly sheet straight onto the ground sheet and then rolls in underneath the tent. Um, I love it when I see people who are camping and they've trimmed that ground sheet so it fits, stays under the fly. The thing is with the ground sheet is that it shouldn't be under the tent. 
you should put a ground sheet inside the tent and it should be tall enough that it goes up the sides a little bit, just to, you know, some, some inches up the side, a solid ground sheet. And the reason is, is that the, the holes, they, they don't, the, the, the people put the thing down to protect it from holes. That's not going to be the concern. The concern is going to be, like you said, when it rains, the water will come in between the tent and the ground sheet. And it's guaranteed if water goes under the tent, it's never going to stay below that ground sheet. It's just, it's um, like a false economy. People think it's going to work, but it doesn't. But if you put it inside the tent, even if your tent leaks, you will still be dry because you have your ground sheet on the inside. There's no real need to protect the, the bottom of your, of your tent from these small rocks and things. That's something that you do before you put your tent up. You do your check. You make sure there's, there's nothing there that's going to tear a hole in it. And you're not, I mean, who's jumping around in their tent? You know, you're going in there oh. and you're laying down and you're sleeping. The, the, big, <laughs> the big thing is, is water. So if you put your ground sheet on the inside, make sure it goes up the side. And it can be as simple as a plastic sheet. You know, you get your, your six mil builder plastic or whatever. You can take a sheet of that, anything. It doesn't even have to be that heavy. It can be very light. On the inside, that's going to be the protection. Hmm. I learned something new. Just a, if people are on a very tight budget and the ground sheets to go under inside the tent, um, pop down to your local carpet showroom because they tend to roll the carpets in very heavy-duty plastic and they'll be only too happy to give you one of these rolls and they tend to be about the right size for a three-person tent. You just trim down the size that you want. Well, that's interesting. Huh? Um, but the, the plastic that I'm saying putting inside, you could even get, you know, the, the, the cheap stuff you get for painting mm-hmm. and it's very small, very thin. The plastic doesn't take up a lot of space when it's folded up. It's one of the great things about it. And then just use that as your, your yeah. internal mm-hmm. ground sheet. I can go along with using that on the inside, but protection for my, who knows how many hundreds of dollar tent. Um, that's what the ground sheet's for to me. And I, I'm, I'm going to continue putting my ground sheet on the outside. Thank you very much. The plastic on the inside, hmm, in the right climate, that might not be a bad idea. Mm. And I do live on the wet coast, so. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's where we did all our trips. I'm, I'm, and I'm telling you, the the we never used ground sheets underneath tents ever for out of all of our outfitting tents as well. And we never, ever had issues. People didn't get wet, as simple as that. And, um, and of course, you know what the weather's like. And we ran trips right through the summer, right starting in the spring in May, April or May, it would depend, um, on through to September, end of September, which generally the 15th of September on, on the coast, um, you start seeing the rains come in. Do they ever? Yep. Um, another piece of equipment that's um, quite a good idea, I think, just to have as part of your, your regular equipment is to look very closely at the tent pegs that are issued with the tent. Quite often they're very skinny things and they bend as soon as she hits a pebble. So it's worth um, having a look around for um, tent pegs that are a bit more up to the job. And I quite like the ones that are, are sort of tri-pointed, if you're with me. So they've got three bits that come out because they work very nicely in um, sandy conditions, in soft soil conditions. But I also carry four sand pegs if I'm going um, on, a, on a long trip um, because, yeah, a lot of the time you are camping um, off the flood line of a beach. Um, and the other thing that I carry is I always carry one six-inch nail because when you're camping in really rocky conditions, using that first, um, then you can follow up the hole you've made with the six-inch nail with your, your, your pegs. That way you're not going to bend the pegs all the time. So sounds we're like, talking like to a I man do. who carries a six-inch nail and half a toothbrush. 
<laughs> Thank you. Shirley. Yeah, absolutely. Surely it's it's two uses. Um, that extension yeah. ale has more than two uses. Um, for starters, it's great for baking jacket potatoes. <laughs> right. Uh, Carries the heat right to the inside and cooks it from the inside out too. That's right? the one exactly. Yep. Yeah. I carry a variety of tent pegs myself so for the same reason, because you never know what kind of conditions you're going to be in. And if the weather's nasty, well, you drag out the extra pegs and you start staking down everywhere. Yep. You never want exactly the right number of pegs. You always want a couple of extras for who knows what. Yep. And aren't they like socks in the washing machine? You invariably lose one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why you have a few extras. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that, that that makes me think of the the tip about you know hanging your stuff up when you go to camp. People like to make it like a home and, and hang stuff up on the trees and everything. And then quite often when you pack up, you walk out and you leave stuff there Correct. because you hang it up. My rule is I don't hang anything up. I don't I don't put anything out of the ordinary. And and I try to keep I try to keep that same routine all the time. You know, like we do with with everything, right? Like mm -hmm. with packing your panniers, you try and pack in the same way all the time because if you camp using the same method and same layout each time, there's less chance of you forgetting the tent peg. You know, and, and particularly when you're picking up your tent, you want to count through your tent pegs. I mean, if you've got, you know, 10 of them or whatever it is, pick them up, count them, put them in your bag. You know, it's um, it's well yeah. worth doing rather than leaving stuff at home or at, at, at the camp, rather. Do you yeah. guys ever use a mallet? No. Never. No. I would like to, but no. <laughs> no, hang on. Sam, are you carrying a mallet? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's, um, get uh, out of here, Sam. Seriously. <laughs> Don't worry, I've shortened the handle. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, you, you cut the, the handle off your toothbrush to save weight, but you're taking a mallet to put your tent pegs in? I am also in? very careful with the length of my fingernails because they add up too. <laughs> no, they do. That's weight for sure. No, Absolutely. I actually do carry a small mallet um, because it doubles up not only for um, getting tent pegs in, but also when tire changing. Um, and I've, I've just found that I'm that much faster with tire changing when I've got a, a, a mallet to give um, a good thump to get things off the beat because my bike's both still got tubes. So yep. Now, just to be clear, this is rubber, steel, plastic? It's rubber. Rubber yeah, mallet. Well, mallet. Okay, you got to be, be clear rubber. here. <laughs> yep. So you have a rubber mallet to put in your tent pegs. And tire change. Have you... It's also very good for throwing at um, local dogs that are giving you a hard time. <laughs> now that, I, yes, definitely. That's a use. I can see that for sure. Do you, do you want me to, to carry on listing the usage? Sure. No, <laughs> no, not in particular. But what I was just going to suggest, have you ever noticed that in a lot of campsites, there's those, those rocks that are hanging around there? Yeah, but I can't lose those when I'm tire changing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. You could borrow my okay. tire pliers, Sam. Oh, oh, yes. thank you, <laughs> oh, sure, let us be live. I, I did go for a long time and use my tire levers um, for banging tent pe pegs in. But, um, yeah. Maybe Not I, heavy enough. No. Yeah. I, I haven't used a rubber mallet tire changing in, well, I'm afraid, to, I'm embarrassed to announce how long it's been. Probably 40 years, if not more. Mm -hmm. I found levers used appropriately are better. Well, I need to watch your tire changing course again. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's a long time. Actually, when was the last time I watched that? Must have been 2005 or something like that. Something like that, yeah, probably. Agreed. No wonder I'm rusty. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jeez, Sam, I really feel like you're getting picked on. Oh, no, that's, that's, just, that's just the norm. I'm talking, talking about hanging myself. Um, one of the things that I adapt my tent with is that I always put in a couple of lines inside the tent in the ceiling. Not not heavy duty, not not you know really thick, or, and they don't weigh much. Um, but I just put those in there for for hanging things up that have got a little bit damp to, to dry. And because I wear glasses, um, I've I've sewn in a little loop. Um, for my glasses to hang on in the night. I did roll over on my glasses one night, and yeah, um, the next day riding was quite amusing looking through the cracks. Mm, yeah, That's I put up a line inside my tent too. Always at least one, if two, if I can yeah, manage I do it. the same. I yeah. like it. Who knows what you're going to hang up? There's always going to be odds and ends. You know, hook your flashlight up there, put, put your glasses on. I do that. Um, yeah. It's very on useful. Big, on the big trip, I just use my fleece as a pillow, my fleece and my. Um, sheepskin saddle um but i've got a little bit um soft in my old age so i actually do use pillow now um but what we did was we um in part because of weight and space but also because of cost um we looked at the, the standard size camping pillow that camping shops were selling and we just thought well neither of us need that much so we just cut the thing in half um Birgit has one half and i've got the other half and she made some little covers for it so that when we're washing gear because especially if you're camping with a you know a mucky face, which happens, um, then you can just be rinsing that out um, and hang it up to dry really quickly too. That's yeah. perfect. I use a um, inflatable pillow that's that inflates kind of square, and that works really well. And on top of that, I put a, a full camping pillow, and over the whole works is the same cotton pillowcase that we used on our around the world trip. Still, great still souvenir. working. Mm. Yep, still working, still great. Yeah, well worn, well washed. I do something similar to that. Sam, I, I thought you were kidding when you said that you cut the pillow in half. I thought, was, I thought you were being funny. No, I'm never no, funny, Jim. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not deliberately, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> because you cut your handle off your toothbrush, and I thought you were saying you cut your pillow in half. But okay, I <laughs> well, I did mention the weight saving. Yeah. Right. No. What's the double use of the pillow? The double use of the pillow. Mm. Well, mine's inflatable, so I'm going to say life preserver. Oh, no. oh I like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. When I when I, like I camp on the beach and the tide comes in, I need that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Susan will say that if I get a good night's sleep because I've got a nice pillow and not grumpy in the morning, and that's a good double use. <laughs> and she probably gets a good night's sleep because you're not snoring all night. Sorry. No comment. Sorry, Grant. <laughs> Grant, you sound as if you're sleeping with your head at 90 degrees to your shoulder. Um, I, I sleep on my side a lot. Most of the time I go to sleep on, my, on one side or the other. Hmm. I end up always in the morning on my back, but I cannot get to sleep on my back. Interesting. Yeah, I'm a toss and turner. Um, so any other essential gear? Tea bottle. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, you have to say that again a little louder, Sam? A pee bottle. Mm-hmm. And what's that for? <laughs> for carrying peas, of course. You know, that two o'clock wake up in the middle of the night and it's raining outside and you're just thinking, I'm busting. Um, well, then it's, unless, depending on how much you've been drinking, then at four o'clock when you wake up. Um, Gatorade bottles are the best. Gatorade bottles are really good. Also, Norgahide bottles with um, lids that okay. screw down really, really nicely. Wide neck. Um, yeah. Nalgene? Nalgene, that's it. Nalgene. 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 Nalgene.
I don't yeah. know why I'm contributing to this conversation because it's <laughs> work for me. Think about it, Michelle. Think about it before you say it. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, what's, right? the, what's the double use of taking that? Yeah, what's the other Yeah, use no, for go, it? Michelle. It's quite a question. Yeah, no. I can't. <laughs> okay. Mm. Um, so did we talk about the actual sleeping mattress? You got to have a good mattress. I mean, I don't know about mm-hmm. Jim, but he probably started out the same as I did on quarter-inch insulate and thought that was heaven. <laughs> no, yeah, actually, I started out without any mat at all. Oh, you are, man. Yeah. Well, I think it's stupid, really. Yeah. It was, <laughs> I wasn't going to use like that. <laughs> but uh, no, that's what I started out with, with backpacking. And that was when I was, <clears throat> excuse me, like, I don't know, it's a 10 or 12, I guess, is when I started. But um, yeah, nope, nothing. It was just my sleeping bag and that was it. But that, that's a long time ago. Yeah, no me. kidding. Yeah. I'm using um, one that's inflatable, which I, and I use a pump to inflate it, and it's got uh, down inside, so it's toasty warm. The difference between that and the old just plain air ones is magnificent. They actually work really well in two ways, don't they? Because not only does um, most most of the cold comes out of the grounds, not the air. Yep. Um, yep. So it works really well from that. But when you're camping in hot areas, um, a lot of the heat would normally radiate up out of the ground from the day sun sun baking that doesn't come through so much either so they they work both ways i like that yeah do you cut yours in half sam and and split (laughs) no i've just got a three-quarter length one right Uh, yeah i gave up on three-quarter length ones no thanks three-quarter lengths on me are too short yeah on you i mean how tall are you i am i'm six just over six feet yeah me too now i'm shrinking I'm oh, six, okay. just over six foot. But I mean, I've got my bike jacket that does for my feet and I've got my sheepskin um, saddle cover and my pillow for the other end. So I don't need any more than that. What's important to me is that my hips, my knees and my shoulders have got something soft and yep. the three quarter does the job. Yeah. I like your attention to detail, Sam. I can tell that you've got your outfit dialed just the way you want it. It just works. And I've, mm-hmm. like everybody, I've made loads of mistakes and bought wrong equipment and things that don't suit me. And the more you travel, the more you learn, the more you find that suits you, even if it's not got two uses. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think my, got my, short, my shortened spoon wouldn't have an extra use. I need to think on this. <laughs> no, but I can imagine that this, the, the weight saving on that is just, that's huge. I mean... I mean, it's metal. It's huge. Anyway, let's um, let's let's talk about some uh, some weight distribution and, and tips for balancing. Do you, do you guys have anything in that? All the weight forward and down. That's all there is uh, to it. The rest of it's easy. Not 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 behind the rear axle. As much yeah. as possible. Yep. As much as possible. Mm-hmm. Between the yep. wheels and down low. Yep. Yeah, so pretty basic, right? Pretty basic, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. If everything you pick up, you think about: is this a, a heavy, relatively, or a light, relatively? And if it's heavy, like tools and all that kind of stuff, forward and down as best you can get it. That really makes a big difference. One of the things that I've done with my tools is that the bulk of them are down in the bottom of my pannier, and they're at the front of the pannier. Um, yes. But the things that I'm likely to need just to tighten things up along the road, you know, that end of the day inspection that you do with your bike, especially when you've been on um, bumpy roads, um, I'll keep um, Allen keys that I know um, I'm going to likely to, to, to tweak things with. And um, the number 10, number 11 
um, number 12 spanner and I'll just keep those in my tank bag. So I've not got to go around digging in the bottom of my pannier and they don't weigh much. Yeah. And it goes without saying, just be logical with the packing. The stuff that you're going to use during the day should be somewhere that's easily accessed during the day, you know, your tank bag, whatever it is you have or at the top of your bag. The stuff that you're using the least goes down the bottom of the bag. I mean, that, that makes sense. My personal thought process with, um, with panniers is that I don't put any liquids inside, certainly mm. not water inside yeah. panniers. I think we've talked about this before. I don't do that at all. To me, it makes no sense. But um, I know yeah, people have carried fuel choice. and bottle inside their pannier. And yeah, regretted it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is one of the beautiful things about tank panniers, isn't it? Because, again, it's between your two wheels and it's down low. So carrying your water there helps balance out some of the weight that you're carrying on the back end of your bike. It's just more equal distribution. It makes yeah. the bike handle so much better. Yeah, that's why I've got the front boxes on my old R80 GS. Mm -hmm. There's a large part of the heavy stuff, the tools, mostly were forward in there. Which balanced all the weight and Susan on the back too. When you're riding two up, you've got a passenger sitting on or just behind the axle. That makes a massive difference. When you're riding two up, Brian and and Shirley as well. When you're riding two up, you're kind of like it's a completely awkward load anyway, isn't it? And you, and you're sort of doing your best to try and you know get it under control. I resent being uh, referred to as awkward. <laughs> As those words came out, I thought that was probably not the best way to say that, Jim. Probably not the best way to say it, Jim. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you have been referred to as ballast before. But, um, I have. Uh, I, again, I try and keep everything, even in my tank bag, my tank bag would be quite heavy, but at least it's between the axles. I, I will keep uh, heavy stuff in the tank bag rather than put it behind the axles if I can. So, you know, the tent, um, sleeping bags, you know, light jumpers and jackets and stuff like that will be in the top box or a bag on the back. And um, the panniers and the tank bag and the side bags that hang off the tank bag uh, will have more weight in it. Um, and, and still, it's between the axles and it's, um, it keeps the bike pretty well balanced. You can tell mm -hmm. when you put the bike on the centre stand how well balanced it is, mm -hmm. um, whether it's back heavy or front heavy. But, but if you can I, get I, it up on the center stand, well, I, I usually can. But it, <laughs> it, it's it's um, uh, it's it's a constant moving feast because surely you'll buy something, of course, and <laughs> I'll have to find somewhere to put it. Yeah. <laughs> An ever changing three D jigsaw puzzle. That's packed. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. And I've got yeah, um, yeah. bags that fit on top of the ta of the panniers which will carry um, food stuff and light stuff and med medical kit and stuff like that easily and readily available when you need it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I remember when Susan and I first started camping together, we were just figuring out this new two-up and how are we going to do all this stuff. And I remember asking her, yeah, I need something about the size of my fist. That'll fit this hole here just nicely. What do you got? Eventually, you know exactly what goes there. Because you've done it the same way every day yeah. for months or whatever. Mm. And, but that's the big thing with consistency. And we use bags for everything. Everything goes into a stuff sack. Yeah. There's nothing floating loose. So yeah. you just, I mean, I could literally pick up a handful of string and walk away and set up camp 50 feet away from the bike. And it was all there. It was easy. But I've seen lots of people toss all kinds of stuff loose into their saddlebag and everything ends up at the bottom and it drives you crazy trying to find stuff. And where did that go? Now, it's all yeah. color-coded. I mean, 
The red bag was the toilet paper bag, and that was always at the top of the saddlebag. That was always easy to get. Yeah. It just makes life easy. Mm-hmm. The bug yeah, bag was go, yellow. We don't, we don't go to the, co- the, to the color coding, but we use uh, calico bags, those lightweight bags, take up no room. They're also yep. good souvenirs because you buy them at yeah. different places you visit, and when you get home you've got a bag that's got, you know, Galapagos or whatever mm-hmm. on it. One of the things that I've been doing um, on this trip in particular, just just for fun to see how it's how it works, is because I'm staying sometimes in motels, um, but mostly camping. What I've been doing is my Ortley waterproof bag, which is the top loading one, and I love that because you can access everything in there so much better than you can when you're using one of the tube ones that you stuff in from one end. But um, I have my walkaway. Um, survival kit as it were in that so for example if i'm camping and it's raining i could just take this ortley bag off bung it straight in underneath um in one of the porch areas and in that i've got everything that i'm going to need to get through the night and for breakfast the next morning before i have to be up and about and if i'm going into a hotel um it's basically got the same sorts of things um that i need to be able to do that so um when I'm camping, then it's got sleeping bag and mat and the liner. Um, and then I've got my flip-flops, my toothbrush, something suitable for dinner and breakfast, uh, a change of clothes in case I've got um, really wet during the day, a flashlight and a backup charger. Um, and, yeah, just get all of these straight in your tent without um, without any chance of stuff getting wet. The essentials for the night. Um, and a lot of that, that, sounds, just, that sounds like half your gear, though, Sam. No, no, it's not. On this okay. t- on this trip, um, I'm travelling also with two pop up banners and a tank ba- and a, a one pannier full of t-shirts. Right. Yes, that makes a difference. I know yeah. our setup was always the top box was the house. Mm-hmm. Literally, if it wasn't for the house, then we didn't even go into it. If we were staying in a hotel, we didn't open the box. Yep. That was it. So and, and for the the quickie bag was open up one pannier lid, grab my clothing, Susan's clothing bags, and um, our kits were inside there for the night, and that's all we needed. And uh, Very quick, very dirty, same idea as you. Just um, going back to everybody's comments on tents, um, when you're putting a tent away and you're carrying it in a pannier, for example, and I know loads of people do this, um, one thing I learned the hard way was, um, when I was doing it, um, was always mark any cans of food that you might have um, on the top, on the top with a sharpie, what's actually inside? Because um, you put a wet tent in a pannier and then you dry, ride for a day, um, those labels get soggy and come off, and then you end up with surprise um, something for dinner. Yeah, <laughs> that verse brought to mind another one that is it's a little bit off topic, but just came to mind, and it's important. I remember in the days of ordinary batteries, this couple going through uh, Africa and they stashed. $500, I think it was, might have been more, underneath their battery. Bad idea. No, no, the no. battery, The plastic bag, they'd put it in, wore through battery acid just a little bit in the atmosphere, and $500 was black powder. Mm. Wow. Don't do that. Keep it away from your battery. You have more for cooking as well as keeping clean, Sam, on this? Um, keeping clean, not so much, um, except that I always carry at least one pair of boxer shorts because then if the only place that I can go and wash is um, a river and there are lots of other people around, well, I can get at everything without embarrassing myself or anybody else. 
And the two uses there is um, one of my friends, he uses those for um, a sun hat when it's really hot because it protects his neck as well. Um, he does look decidedly silly, but he doesn't care. Um, and they also work as a pair of swimming trunks if, um, if you're going um, swimming at some stage. So that works quite nicely. So you wear your underwear on your head to keep the sun <laughs> off. Yeah. yeah, that's what he does. Right. It, it's, I, I, it's a very entertaining image. Right. Um, okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about cooking. I know this can get really elaborate, so we want to keep this pretty simple, I think. <coughs> Package or food or, or cooked food? I mean, are, are you guys the type of campers that like to cook the full-on meal and, you know, get no. real, you know, extravagant with it? Or do you just make simple meals? Or do you just eat out of a bag? Or do you do what Shirley had mentioned earlier, camp, and then just go someplace, someplace else <laughs> and eat? Michelle and I were talking about this above. just the other day. <laughs> We were. And and I do a little bit of everything. Um, I'm definitely a fan of exploring local food and checking that out. But for kind of a basic system, I carry a, a stove. I, I guess I have a, it, not that it makes any difference, but an MSR Whisperlite International. So I can actually use gasoline. Um, so I can siphon that from my bike if I need to. Um, and I boil water in the morning that I usually do dual purpose. I use for a cup of tea and then I make oatmeal with it. And oatmeal I buy internationally. I usually buy some fruit and cut up fruit in the oatmeal. Um, and that's all I use my stove for in the morning. And then I eat lunch on the road when I'm out and about. And then I use my stove again at night to uh, cook at camp. And I usually make um, a pasta and I will shop and deliberately look for the pasta that cooks the fastest. So the shape of the pasta noodle, the dried pasta makes a difference. If you get something like spaghetti or capellini, um, angel hair pasta that can cook in maybe five to seven minutes. Some of the other pastas will take eight, 10, 12 minutes. And that uses a lot of fuel and more water. Um, so mm. I use, so hang on. So you like snails or something like that, that takes longer. Uh, something, oh, yeah, something like a penne pasta or a fusilli, something that's a thicker, heavier pasta. It takes longer for it to be cooked. So right. the thinner the pasta, like angel hair pasta is better for cooking faster. That's great. I, I've, I've never thought of buying pasta, like and thinking about the cook time of it. I've yeah. never yeah. thought about that. In developing world countries, Jim, um, some of the pastas that um, Michelle's just been talking about can take 20 minutes to cook. Oh, I see. Right. And at altitude. I mean, if you're, mm -hmm, yeah. I, I guarantee yeah. you, if you're at 12,000 feet and I have a story about that, I was making potato salad. Somebody, a friend, a fellow motorcyclist from the UK who was, um, traveling, um, camping with us in Bolivia, a group of us were there. And I said, he was craving American potato salad. And I said, I would make it for him and boiling eggs and potatoes. It was ridiculous, but the eggs took 39 minutes to boil completely wow. because we were at wow. such high altitude. And I actually had to keep replenishing the water because the pot would boil dry. So when you're conscious mm. of fuel and conscious of water and all of that, it is, it is, it sounds like a silly thing, but it is something that's real. Um, but I, yeah. I will buy usually bread and vegetables and I cook a lot. I cook from scratch at camp. I'll have like a can of maybe a tomato sauce or, you know, something like that. Um, but usually I'll stir fry some vegetables. I carry a little, I always travel with a little bottle of, bottle of olive oil. Um, but here's a dual purpose tip, which I don't always do that. Uh, I'll admit to Sam, a lot of my stuff has one use and, and sometimes not, not even one, but <laughs> um, with olive oil, I put a little bit of olive oil in my hands 
and rub it through the ends of my freshly washed hair and it keeps my hair from getting so tangled up. Um, so for ladies that are writers with long hair, that might be of interest. Um, mm. But so I carry olive oil, spices, um, dried soup packets that I can rehydrate, um, cans of soup, cans of tuna, cans of chicken, depends on which country you're in. Um, canned chicken isn't as popular outside of North America as it is here. Um, but I'll buy a lot of fresh veggies and fruit and eat that on the road. Um, but have to be really mindful of, again, water. If I'm away from a water source, washing that fruit, washing vegetables is going to take water and I plan accordingly. Um, and then I'll cook something for dinner at night and, and finish it off and wash my dishes and close up the kit and till morning. So I'm, I'm pretty mindful of, of um, I carry a small bottle of dish soap and I try to make sure that I wash up um, utensils and pans really well because I don't want to have an issue with a stomach bug because of you know, poor uh, camp cleaning skills in my kitchen. So that's that. Okay. Yeah. I think that sounds very organized. (laughs) I can't think of anything to add to that either. We always carry a little thing of olive oil. Olive oil. And my secret pleasure if we're going camping um, on the bike, salt and pepper grinders. Sorry. (laughs) But I just, you can put the crappiest food on a plate and put masses of cracked pepper and a bit of salt on it and it tastes better. I agree. I carry a salt grinder, but not a pepper. That's a luxury. Good for you. Guess guess Mm. what I could use my mallet for? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's another use. It's just an incredible tool. I'm so impressed with it. Along with um, um, Michelle's quick rice and quick pasta, um, I always carry couscous too. It's amazing how many countries that's available in, but that, you know, you just pour the water, pour it on and leave it for five minutes and job done. You can be you know, using, you know, doing other things, etc. It just cooks really quickly. The other thing that I carry is a small Tupperware box. It's big enough for me to get four eggs in, um, or tomatoes if I um, find them, and I want to carry them without them getting um, mangled. Yeah. Good okay. idea. Well, that's some that's some good tips in there. Uh, we've we've heard a lot. We've talked a lot about. Um, about cleaning. There's been a lot of tips in here about cleaning. Is there anything else anyone wants to throw in about keeping clean? I think we sort of covered it, didn't we? Yeah, I think it's covered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I would just throw in my only thing would be is that you you should keep clean. Mm-hmm. Like make the point of, of figuring out which parts need to be washed. I think we all know them. And, and give them a wash and, or the bird bath that Michelle is talking about. And keep yourself clean because just there's just no reason to to be dirty. I mean, if, if you've got a little bit of water there and you've got some soap, and um, and you can get into your tent. In most cases, don't wash in lakes or streams, obviously, because um, that it's not good for the environment. Biodegradable soap. Somebody already mentioned that, and leave no trace. I think Sam's mentioned that many many times. I know, and I think Michelle reiterated that point as well. I was curious, the one thing I was going to ask is that, um, you know, we always learn so many things from others. And I think that some of the best things that you learn, like, you know, when when, when somebody gives a tip on here that I don't know, I, I, I almost sort of, you know, ferret that thing away and think that that's a great tip that I've gleaned from that. But another one, would be if you're, you're out and you come across somebody else and you see what they're doing, you think, wow, that is cool. Why don't I do that? You know? Have you guys had any of those things, those little, um, uh, you might call them epiphanies, camping epiphanies. You go and you see what somebody else is doing and you think, what a great idea. Have you guys ever had that? Over the years, I'm sure I've had a few thousand of them, but do I remember them? No, because they're now a part of what I do. They're just the way mm-hmm. I do things. 
Hmm. One of the things we actually talked about a few minutes back, and that's carrying an extra ground sheet and using that um, over the top of your tent in hot weather. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I met an Australian couple who carried a small colander, a metal colander, like you would drain pasta or something in, and they used that to contain a campfire. Um, so they would put wood in that in the tiny little holes that water would drain out of is where air came in. And it was just a small, very contained fire. And it, it was a creative idea. And they could have, yeah. they had a little piece of like um, metal mesh that they laid over the top and could cook on it. I like that. That's pretty neat. And that's being environmental as well, right? So they're, they're, they're containing their fire there. Yep. Nice. Okay. So let's go into, uh, to part two, using your bike maintenance records to predict the future. Now this, this is a, an odd title. I'm sure to most people, they're probably thinking what this topic came from a listener named Fred DeWolf. Now Fred says that he does his own maintenance. He's got a, a 2016 F 800 set of warranty. He keeps his receipts so he knows what he's done, but he doesn't keep them organized. So what he does is he finds himself digging through his receipts, trying to piece together what he'd replace when, when he's trying to figure out what he should replace for an upcoming trip or what he should be planning to replace on an upcoming trip. You know, chains, sprockets, and wheel bearings, tires, all that sort of stuff. Fred wants to know, his, his, his question is, he's got a few of them here, but if experienced travelers keep an accurate record of when they do things like oil changes, uh, in some sort of uh, record book. And do they use that record to predict when they may need a chain and sprocket or coolant or shock oil filters, all of the sort of stuff that we end up doing, like brake pads and and, and things like that. He also asked um, if experienced travelers are organized, organized enough to leave a box of wear items at home with someone ready to mail, which is a, is a great idea. Um, so that you just have to contact them or maybe even after a certain period of time, they mail it to at a predetermined place, something like that. The reminders, he was wondering if you do keep reminders, do you keep on the phone, in the calendar, et cetera? Well, maybe let's, let's just tackle that because we're, we're getting fairly convoluted here. So is anyone doing that? Are you keeping track of what you replace and know how many miles you get out of it? Because the tire is obvious, right? You're just going to look at your tire and that can change with your load and the weather um, and how hard you're riding. But the rest of the things, is anyone keeping track? Is anyone this detailed? No, no, I should be. I know I should be. And I know it's a great idea. And I have probably half a dozen different locations that I have started and done this current record of what I did on the service. And then I never follow up with a second one. I know it's sad. Yeah. <laughs> Look, um, I, I, I don't keep, I keep records of the services I do at home on each of the bikes, but when I'm travelling, I, I know my bike. You know, I know what's going to wear out. I know I need to carry a, an alternator belt. I know I need to carry rear brake pads. So don't worry about front brake pads. You know, um, yeah. I, I, I think I've done 150,000 kilometres and still haven't worn out front brake pads, but the back ones you will wear out. Um uh, simply because of um, sometimes with the, your, your bike will, will break on the rear more um, for some reason. Um, that's Lots of I, dirt and water flings up there yeah, and clacked on the back. I, that's I the biggest that, issue. Yeah, I think that's right, Grant. Um, but I know what those those things wear out. Um, and I, you know, every 10,000 Ks I'm looking for somewhere to change my oil. But it's if you're riding your bike every day at constant speeds, constant temperatures, it's not that important. Um, 
uh, with oil changes. So my good mate mechanic says, he says, look, um, it's the stop, start, stop, start, um, cold start, you know, all that sort of stuff uh, that wears your, uh, your bike city out more. Driving. Yeah, city driving, that type of thing. Yeah, so um, I, I, I'll, I'll, I, that, that's all I'll take. I don't need anything else. Um, if something breaks, yeah, I had a mate who was organised to find parts and send them if I needed them. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, I, I, I don't take a list. I think it's, um, it's a bit of a waste of money to buy stuff and have it sitting there if you don't need it. Um, and I, we've never had a problem. Great. And and you just buy stuff on the road. So in other words, you're, yeah. you're talking about your your brake yeah. pads. Do you buy them yeah. on the road? Uh, yeah. No, no. I'll I'll take my rear brake pads. I didn't even bother taking front brake pads for two years. You know, uh, on a trip. Um, uh, and uh, oils. Yeah, all right. You mightn't get the exact oil that you want on the road, but you change it. And there was one point there where I didn't have a spare oil filter, and we'd been travelling through hot, dusty. Um, really congested conditions in India, and I said, "Oh, the bike probably needs an oil change." It's getting really hot really quickly, um, so uh, I, I um, found a little mechanic mate and um, used his workshop, and we actually pulled the oil filter out and cleaned it and cleaned it and cleaned it and cleaned it uh, with um, uh, the petrol compound um, and let it dry. And then put it back in and reused it until I could get a proper oil filter and do it again. But there's always a way around these things. And to me, um, it can be a little, you know, you're just, you're just buying stuff and carrying stuff for no reason. Yeah. I carry mm-hmm. a, an oil filter spare and I always keep that yeah. because um, with my R80GS, trying to find an air filter or an oil filter for an R80GS in some of these countries, like, forget it. You're just not going to. Yeah. So I would carry one spare, but it was, they're not very big. I mean, it's an inch yeah. and a bit diameter and six inches long. That's it. Sick it away in the corner. Um, I foolishly yeah. carried a few odds and ends that I really didn't need. Um, but yeah, rear brake pads wear out at a, a t- ridiculous rate. I hear guys all the time wearing out their yeah. pads on the uh, Dempster Highway uh, or yeah. the Hall Road. It's really bad. Um, but the rest of it, you can get it pretty and, much and, anywhere. And look, I, I can tell you a story about a guy, um, a crazy guy from Alice Springs, actually. He was uh, riding in Pakistan and Afghanistan, of all places, during the war conflicts and ran out of rear brake pads. So what he did was he pulled the rear brake pads out and he found a guy that um, would put, uh, I think they were cow skin or leather uh, over the old brake pads so you weren't metal on metal, and um, that got him. That got him out of trouble. He stuck, just stuck him on it, and got him out of trouble. So, yep. you know, there there are ways uh, around it. Once upon a time, we relined brake pads all the, or brake um, shoes, yeah, shoes for the drum That's brake right. days all the time. And That's in these right. places, you'll probably find that somebody has. I mean, there's going to be lots of drum brakes out there, and they will reline those drum brakes. For yeah, sure. Yeah. And you can take that material and bond it to a brake pad and it'll work fine. Absolutely exactly. no same, problem at all. Same sort of principle, Grant. But And the other sure. thing is air, air, fil- air filters, I change them to reusable canine filters uh, mm-hmm. that you can take out, clean out, wash out, and a thin film of oil will get you out of trouble. You don't have to take a spare air filter. 
Doesn't that okay. save you a huge amount of space? Not weight, yeah. but space. I yeah. use foam filters. I don't uh, K and N yeah. filters. Um, just a little comment. K and N filters. My understanding is that they've even had sponsored racers using K and N filters, and then they put a foam filter over top of it for dusty over races. Top. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or so you can use a sock. Uh, K&N has always been about performance, isn't it? Performance, yes. Google Tech makes some um, incredible filters, like really, really good, sort of the cutting edge stuff nowadays. Uh, they make the the filter that goes into your tank, like so for oh, fuel. Yeah. Yeah. For instance, yeah. the sock that goes into your tank, Very fantastic. Handy. They make reusable uh, air filters. Um, so you just take the air filter out and you clean it and put it back in. So yep. it's worthwhile looking at Google Tech. Yeah, I put a foam filter in my R80GS by... You couldn't buy it. Couldn't buy one that didn't exist. So I just ripped out the paper filter because it's a, it's a pancake style. Ripped out yeah. the paper, put a bit of wire mesh in, put a foam filter on top of that. Worked fine. It's still in there. Still the original one I put in there. It's fine. Oh, wow. It's over well over two hundred thousand miles. And it's fine. Yeah. You just keep washing it out. Just oil keep it up, washing put it, back it and in. oil it. That's good. Yeah. And nice. If you great. you're supposed to use fancy air filter oil. Yeah. Guess what? Nah. Motor oil works just fine. Yeah, just a thin yeah. film. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I've just finished uh, refurbing an old 85 Suzuki and they all use foam filters around the, the um, outside, which, you know, and the old Kawasaki's the same. So mm-hmm. um, it's probably been um, a good little ploy to get more money out of you, I think. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so no one no one here takes and does the the detailed record keeping or anything. We think I, we've got that, right? I will actually say that I do, surprisingly, because I'm the least mechanically inclined uh-huh. out of the bunch here, but Exactly um, what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I the, knew that, uh, that would be the case. <laughs> it's it's funny because it helps me remember and and I'm yeah. and I want to make sure I don't forget something and if I need to hand records over to a mechanic or look back and remember something, there it is. And I, I chalk that all up to having um, had an excellent excellent partner, travel partner for a lot of years, who was a mechanic and he taught me really good habits. And I appreciate the luxury of of being able to, to know that and learn those things. So um, he started uh, writing down in a small little paper notebook, everything that was going on with my bike, all of the tire changes, oil changes, other services, replacements, upgrades, Anytime chains, sprockets, filters, um, any of the mods that were done for my bike, when you do the do or the do hickey on a KLR, uh, the 22 cent mod, drilling holes in the airbox, all that kind of stuff, those are all noted dates and mileage on the bike. And really, because he established that for me, that's something that I follow through with and I appreciate knowing the history of that bike. Um, when I traveled, I carried um, a full set, but both inner tubes. I know some people say you can carry just the front one if you're really safe saving space, all of that. But I carried both inner tubes, um, both brake pads, chains and sprocket, uh, chain and sprockets. I carried one oil filter and sometimes two, if I was going to be um, going through countries where I wasn't sure if there was a dealership or if I could get a second one. If I had uh, run across a Kawasaki dealership and they had two oil filters, I would buy two just because I knew I had my hands on it. And I carried two spark plugs in case I fouled one, in case, you know, it was just time to change one, whatever. Um, and I carried fuses, a couple of spare headlamp bulbs, things like that. Um, and I and I tracked and logged everything that, um, that I was doing on the bike or anybody else did on the bike because I don't always do the service. In fact, I usually don't, but um, I keep track of it and that way I know what's going on with it. 
So I am the odd person out here that I keep that little notebook. And it's probably something I could move to digitally and keep in my phone, but I haven't. I still have that little paper notebook. Mm, well, it's that's interesting that you do that. Now, do you use that information to predict when something will wear out now that you know the, how long it takes? You, you know, no, I would say I've never done it for that. Um, what I did use it for was um, figuring out tire brands. It, it, that was something that I looked back on repeatedly. Like how many miles wow. did I get out of a rear tire? Pirelli rubber was a little softer. So I knew it was maybe a few thousand miles less, but I like the handling of it, you know, et cetera. It, so I think I used it probably more in hindsight, looking for tire selection um, than I did for anything else. I never used it pre- to predict. I mean, I think in general, I do Google searches or forum searches to know, okay, if I'm going this many miles on this kind of terrain, I mean, nothing's at, it's still to some degree, a a guessing game. If I've adjusted my chain properly, if I'm overloaded, if there's some issues that might affect the life of that uh, chain and sprockets. But um, I kind of just follow forum information anymore to predict that kind of stuff. Well, that's really smart with the tires because I wish I have done that over the years and I've made, made all my notes because I've made some, you know, observations that are interesting to me probably only, but that, that are applicable to me. And um, it, it would be so handy to, to have that information I could look back on. Hmm. What a great um, question to, to send in for us. Um, yes. Michelle's basically just ticked all of the boxes that I was going to say, except for I was traveling on the big trip with um, a shaft. So several of those things didn't apply. But I did keep a record of um, the tires um, and I changed my oil way more frequently than the 5,000 miles um, that you were supposed to. So I used to to keep a little note of that. But that was pretty much all I did. The rest was just, oh, it needs replacing. It looks worn. Um, I'll do it now. Yeah, that's kind of what I do. And I'm not uh, a fanatic about oil change, frequent oil changes either. Um, I used to be a long, long time ago, but modern oil is so good. Modern engines are so good that it, it, I don't just don't think it's necessary to be really fanatical about the exact mileage. I mean, the, the manufacturer does all kinds of testing for average use, average rider, which means lots of city riding, lots of yahooing around. They're They're not testing for long distance road trips where you're driving easy and you're not playing around and, and it's the bike always gets fully warmed up and it's never this five minute drive and shut it down and then condensation gets into the oil and all that kind of stuff. You know, we, we are on the very long end of the possible mileage that the manufacturer would recommend for frequency of changing your oil. So they may say 5,000 miles is recommended oil change. You could, to the 8,000 without even blinking. You could push it to 10 if you really wanted to. And you yeah. certainly don't have to change the oil filter every time either. You could easily do to every second filter, every second change if you wanted to. So I, th- I think you just don't have to be that fussy anymore. I, I, think I was being fussy with, with the oil changes in part because it was a new bike. Um, in yeah. part because I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but it just seemed to be common sense. In part because I was very much aware that in some of the countries that I was going to, um, I, I was using oil of a brand that I'd never seen before and I had no idea yeah. of the quality. So it just made sense um, to change things a little bit more often. As far as a, a, a box of goodies at home with a faithful helper, um, I didn't do that on the big trip because P for Brain here was carrying virtually every spare part that he needed for the next 10 years, eight years. Um, 
And But now I probably would if I was going to be doing long distance travel, um, but I would use the time in the prep stage to buy um, secondhand parts, things like that, um, and just have them there as a basic backup. Um, it's, you know, with some research, you can find bits and pieces that um, you're likely to need. And if you can prove that they're secondhand, then it means that when they're coming into countries, um, very often you don't end up having to pay anything like so much um, import tax into whatever country it is. So it's worth it from a money-saving point of view like that. But there are so few parts that are, are going to, to, to cause you grief, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, well, the easy way to do that too, Sam, is you make take the used part off of your bike long before it really needs it yeah. and put a new mm-hmm. part on and yep. then head off on your trip. Yeah, absolutely. And yep. one of the big things with that is you know the part fits your bike. And, and you know it you, works. You know it works. I couldn't tell you the number of times I've heard of, I just got a cable, pulled up my spare cable and went to put it in and it's not the right one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Always yep. put the new part on, the old one is a good spare. But we had some problems like that with Birgit's bike because um, we'd done quite a lot of work to it before um, heading out. Um, there were a lot of, of non-original parts on it for an R60 slash 5. Um, and so going to a dealership, BMW dealership, and saying, um, we want this part, well, that was no longer easy. And one tip there is if you are heading out on a long trip is make sure that your local dealer at home, the one you do most um, business with knows exactly what you've done to your bike so if you're in that position and you need to get them to send out parts to you um they know what you've been up to well the other method is make sure you've got part numbers for everything on your bike mm-hmm. that you use and when when you buy your new parts to put onto the bike record the part numbers i nice. did that with everything and it's this is what i need boom 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 there's your list they say right yep okay where do you want it sent to nice one yeah. And another tip to go with that is wherever you are, find out who the courier is. If it's DHL is the courier in town, you want it shipped DHL. You may find that DHL is the only guys. And if they send it by FedEx, it goes to the capital city yeah. and then goes to a local courier who wanders down some back forest track and it may or may not get to you in the next three weeks. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Make sure it's the courier in the town where you are. Well, um, I, I think we have to we have to cut that off there. Then we've we've covered a lot with it. We're we're running really long here, actually. But Fred DeWolf, thank you very much for the question. Great question. And if you're listening to this and you have a question or you think uh, you've got a topic that might be suitable, just go to the website adventureriderradio.com and click on the contact button and send it to us. We'd love to hear about it. So from here, we're going to jump into plugs. Sam, what do you have for plugs? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank everyone um, who's been. Um, at one of my um, presentations over the last month, um, particularly uh, those who are raw listeners. It's been fantastic to, to meet up with so many people. Um, absolutely brilliant. And I'd also like to thank those who um, did all of the organizing because you know they tend to be tucked away behind the scenes on the night itself. Um, but there's a lot of work that goes into making these things happen. You know, it's screens and projectors and chairs and tables and extra staff and, um, you know, j- just everything. So these guys are absolutely great. Um, so um, that's um, everybody at um, BMW MOA, their national event, BMW Motorcycles of Detroit, Windy City in Chicago, along with the BMW Club there, and Moon Motorsports in Monticello, Minnesota. Um, absolutely super people, all of them. And um, yeah, lots of fun. Um, 
My next presentations are coming up fairly soon. The next one is um, at the Kissel's Soggy Bottom Moto Fest. What a great name, hey? And that's in Port Matilda, um, Pennsylvania. But um, that is sold out and has been sold out for quite a long time. Um, my final presentation um, on this trip is with Morton's BMW in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And that's on the 5th of August. So, uh, yeah, I really hope that I'm going to get a chance to meet up with um, lots more raw listeners. Um, you guys are absolute buzz. So, yeah, thanks very much for coming along. And the schedule is at sam-manicom.com where they can find it, correct? Even though you're on the road, it is up to date, correct? It Sam? is indeed. Thank you, Jim. Beautiful. Okay, thank you, Sam. Uh, now, Shirley and Brian, I know you, you, I think you said you have to go as well. So I'm going to take you guys next, right? Um, yeah, I don't have anything. Well, oh, sure, anything. sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, I've, got, I've got a couple of things. Um, just for people in Victoria, Australia, October will be Motorcycle Awareness Month, which I'm on the committee, I'm actually chairing the committee for. We'll have uh, special events right throughout October. So, so please um, uh, keep an eye out, get online with your local motorcycle club, and uh, you'll hear of the events that we're going to have. There'll be a launch with um, a special guest. I'm hoping a, a very um, uh, I won't I won't say who it is, but a, a very very uh, well credentialed um, rider uh, may come along as um, the uh, host of the the event. Um, the other thing I'm going to talk about. So that's all of October. Uh, which incorporates the uh, MotoGP events down at Phillip Island and uh, uh, right throughout the month. And, of course, that's one of the best months for riding down here in um, southern Australia. Um, the other thing I'm going to promote is our wall-to-wall ride, which is on the 16th of September, gathering in Canberra for all people in Australia. Um, we'll be riding to the m- Memorial Wall, on the, the lake um, in the main uh, capital uh, and um, we're raising money for, for legacies and that is on the 16th of September. Uh, I attended a meeting in Canberra on uh, just last week and um, we've got at least, uh, I think we're up around six 700 riders are coming from all over Australia so far. We expect 2,000 wow. riders together in the city, uh, which will be fantastic. And uh, we'll have a Greenlight Corridor escorted ride uh, to Parliament House and then down to our memorial. Um, Yamaha, again, have come to the party every year. For the last 14 years, Yamaha have been fantastic sponsors for this event and they give us uh, usually a motorcycle or uh, to uh, raffle off and the raffle is open now. Um, and uh, this year... It's going to be Yamaha uh, Motor Australia has donated an all-new and exciting addition to the land mobility range, they call it. It's a push bike, an e, e uh, push bike valued at $9,000. So they've given us that to, to auction off. Um, so uh, they're only $10 a ticket. So get on board. Uh, you can find it at walltowallride.com uh, if you just get on um, the internet, you'll find it there. You can um, buy uh, raffle tickets, you can buy merchandise, you can register there for the event or you can donate, whichever you want to do, and that's at walltowallride.com. So they're the two events that uh, I'm involved with and I've been involved um, 
with the formation and, and this event, the wall-to-wall ride for 14 years now, and uh, it just grows and grows and grows. And it's um, very respectful and um, great, great ride that uh, you can meet up with all your friends from all over Australia. Thanks. The bike sounds amazing. The the value of the bike sounds like it's going to be an incredible bike. This is a bicycle, right? A push yeah, bike. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's an electric push bike, and they're moving into this space. Electric one. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, hey, no. So I know we've asked you before this, but but seriously, can people buy tickets from other countries? Would they still get the bike? Uh, no, that's a that's a real problem. Um, getting the authorities yeah, for for a raffle overseas, which is a bit of Right. It's, it's not right. Really, so it's, is it? yeah. yeah, it's disappointing, but, uh, but so it's Australia only. Yeah, it's no, Australia only. Right. But I've got to say, you know, that, that uh, wall-to-wall ride, we, we, I basically pinched the idea from the boys in Texas, which, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's great. Sounds amazing. And then 2,000 riders you're expecting, just incredible. That's, yeah. that's just amazing. Okay, thank you, Brian. Uh, Michelle, what do you have? Um, I had a couple of uh, raw listeners stop by and I just wanted to pass along their kind comments to all of you. And I forgot to share those earlier, but uh, John and Tony from Minnesota came in a couple of weeks ago, Mike and Rick from Colorado and Iowa and Robert from New Hampshire yesterday stopped by and they all um, asked me to pass along their thanks to you, Jim, and to the entire crew for um, just the fun and entertainment. And I wanted to say thank you to our raw listeners for being so supportive and so kind and, um, and for giving us great ideas for topics and great questions and lots of support. I think that's fantastic. Um, so part of my plug is to our raw listeners as a thank you. Um, secondly, I, just a reminder, um, I am the national president of the Women's International Motorcycle Association USA division, and we have our national rally, our second annual national rally coming up September 14th through the 16th in Maggie Valley, North Carolina. So if anybody, um, it, you don't have to be a WIMA, WIMA member, you can be, you do not have to be if you'd like to tag along or stop by and say hello. Any women riders f- traveling around the world, they uh, don't even have to be American. Uh, we also have members in our in our division that are from Canada. So anyway, if you're interested in getting information, please stop by WIMA, that's W-I-M-A hyphen USA.com for information or drop me a line. We also have a Facebook page. So yeah, if you're interested in attending our event, we'd love to see you there. Fantastic. Grant, what do you have? Yeah, I was, you have a chance to get to the Switzerland Roma, Switzerland meeting, August 17 to 20, Romania, August 25 to 27, Ecuador, 7, September 8 to 9, France, I, they're probably going to sell out again, so be sure you re- register early for the France one, that's September 15 to 17, and Austria is a brand new event in a gorgeous location, Matt's waiting for you guys to get there and have a good time, that's September 21 to 24. And of course, Germany, they, I don't know how Jens does it, but he does two every year, spring and fall. So November two to five for that one. So those are all on the schedule and a chance for you to get to it and meet some people who've been around the world, planning on going around the world, thinking about it, not sure about it. You'll have lots of people to talk to and discuss. And that is horizonsunlimited.com forward slash events. See how well I did that so that you had to say it? that is great well thank you very much everyone it's been great fun it's just been so much fun the time has flown by i know we're fairly long here today 
but it's just been so much fun. I think I just got caught up and, and, and lost track. Yep. We just kept going. It was fun. Good. I hope everybody learned something. I know yeah. I did. Yeah, yep. me too. Yeah, I did yep. too. Yep. Sure. Always good ideas. All right. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Have fun. Do some camping. Enjoy your ride, Sam. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also have published their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a motor traveler that also has a couple of great motor travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for traveling overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. AdventureRiderRadio.com. Adventure Rider Radio.